This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Roads Must Roll by Robert A. Heinlein. It comes to us courtesy of Blackstone Audio and their collection, The Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 1, 1929-1964. The story runs 1 hour 33 minutes. We will be discussing it and the Science Fiction Hall of Fame afterwards. The Roads Must Roll by Robert A. Heinlein, first published in 1940. Who makes the roads roll? The speaker stood still on the rostrum and waited for his audience to answer him. The reply came in scattered shouts that cut through the ominous, discontented murmur of the crowd. We do! We do! Damn right! Who does the dirty work down inside so that Joe Public can ride at his ease? This time it was a single roar. We do! The speaker pressed his advantage, his words tumbling out in a rasping torrent. He leaned toward the crowd, his eyes picking out individuals at whom to fling his words. What makes business? The roads. How do they move the food they eat? The roads. How do they get to work? The roads. How do they get home to their wives? The roads. He paused for effect, then lowered his voice. Where would the public be if you boys didn't keep them roads rolling? Behind the eight ball, and everybody knows it. But do they appreciate it? Phooey! Did we ask for too much? Were our demands unreasonable? The right to resign whenever we want to. Every working stiff in any other job has that. The same pay as the engineers? Why not? Who are the real engineers around here? Do you have to be a cadet in a funny little hat before you can learn to wipe a bearing or jack down a rotor? Who earns his keep? The gentlemen in the control offices or the boys down inside? What else do we ask? The right to elect our own engineers. Why the hell not? Who's competent to pick engineers? The technicians? Or some damn dumb examining board that's never been down inside and couldn't tell a rotor bearing from a field coil. He changed his pace with natural art and lowered his voice still further. I tell you, brother, it's time we quit fiddling around with petitions to the Transport Commission and use a little direct action. Let them yammer about democracy. That's a lot of eyewash. We've got the power, and we're the men that count. A man had risen in the back of the hall while the speaker was haranguing. He spoke up as the speaker paused. Brother Chairman, he drawled. May I stick in a couple of words? You are recognized, Brother Harvey. What I ask is, what's all the shooting for? We've got the highest hourly rate of pay of any mechanical guild, full insurance and retirement, and safe working conditions, barring the chance of going deaf. He pushed his anti-noise helmet farther back from his ears. He was still in dungarees, apparently just up from standing watch. 
Of course we have to give 90 days notice to quit a job, but cripes, we knew that when we signed up. The roads have got to roll. They can't stop every time some lazy punk gets tired of his billet. And now Soapy, the crack of the gavel cut him short. Pardon me, I mean brother Soapy, tells us how powerful we are and how we should go in for direct action. Rats, sure we could tie up the roads and play hell with the whole community, but so could any screwball with a can of nitroglycerin, and he wouldn't have to be a technician to do it neither. We aren't the only frogs in the puddle. Our jobs are important, sure, but where would we be without the farmers, or the steel workers, or a dozen other trades and professions? He was interrupted by a sallow little man with protruding upper teeth, who said, Just a minute, Brother Chairman. I'd like to ask Brother Harvey a question. Then turned to Harvey and inquired in a sly voice, Are you speaking for the Guild, Brother, or just for yourself? Maybe you don't believe in the Guild. You wouldn't by any chance be... He stopped and slid his eyes up and down Harvey's lank frame. A spotter, would you? Harvey looked over his questioner as if he had found something filthy in a plate of food. Sykes, he told him. If you weren't a runt, I'd stuff your stored teeth down your throat. I helped found this guild. I was on strike in 60. Where were you in 60? With the Finks? The chairman's gavel pounded. There's been enough of this, he said. Nobody that knows anything about the history of this guild doubts the loyalty of Brother Harvey. We'll continue with the regular order of business. He stopped to clear his throat. Ordinarily, we don't open our floor to outsiders, and some of you boys have expressed a distaste for some of the engineers we work under. But there is one engineer we always like to listen to whenever he can get away from his pressing duties— I guess maybe it's because he's had dirt under his nails the same as us. Anyhow, I present at this time Mr. Shorty Van Cleek. A shout from the floor stopped him. Brother Van Cleek. Okay, Brother Van Cleek, chief deputy engineer of this road town. Thanks, Brother Chairman. The guest speaker came briskly forward and grinned expansively at the crowd. He seemed to swell under their approval. Thanks, brothers. I guess our chairman is right. I always feel more comfortable here in the guild hall of the Sacramento sector, or any guild hall, for that matter, than I do in the engineer's clubhouse. Those young punk cadet engineers get in my hair. Maybe I should have gone to one of the fancy technical institutes so I'd have the proper point of view instead of coming up from down inside. Now about those demands of yours that the Transport Commission just threw back in your face, can I speak freely? Sure you can, Shorty. You can trust us. Well, of course I shouldn't say anything, but I can't help but understand how you feel. The roads are the big show these days, and you are the men who make them roll. It's the natural order of things that your opinions should be listened to and your desires met. One would think that even politicians would be bright enough to see that. 
sometimes lying awake at night. I wonder why we technicians don't just take things over and... Your wife is calling, Mr. Gaines. Very well. He flicked off the office intercommunicator and picked up a telephone handset from his desk. Yes, darling, I know I promised, but... You're perfectly right, darling, but Washington has especially requested that we show Mr. Bleckensop anything he wants to see. I didn't know he was arriving today. No, I can't turn him over to a subordinate. It wouldn't be courteous. He's Minister of Transport for Australia, I told you that. Yes, darling, I know that courtesy begins at home, but the roads must roll. It's my job. You knew that when you married me. And this is part of my job. That's a good girl. We'll positively have breakfast together. Tell you what, order horses and a breakfast pack and we'll make it a picnic. I'll meet you in Bakersfield, usual place. Goodbye, darling. Kiss Junior goodnight for me. He replaced the handset, whereupon the pretty but indignant features of his wife faded from the visor screen. A young woman came into his office. As she opened the door, she exposed momentarily the words painted on its outer side. Diego Reno, Roadtown, office of the chief engineer. He gave her a harassed glance. Ah, oh, it's you. Don't marry an engineer, Dolores. Marry an artist. They have more home life. Yes, Mr. Gaines. Mr. Blackensop is here, Mr. Gaines. Already? I didn't expect him so soon. The Antipodes ship must have grounded early. Yes, Mr. Gaines. Dolores, don't you ever have any emotions? Yes, Mr. Gaines. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Seems incredible, but you are never mistaken. Show Mr. Blackensop in. Very good, Mr. Gaines. Larry Gaines got up to greet his visitor. Not a particularly impressive little guy, he thought, as they shook hands and exchanged formal amenities. The rolled umbrella, the bowler hat, were almost too good to be true. An Oxford accent partially masked the underlying clipped, flat, nasal twang of the native Australia. It's a pleasure to have you here, Mr. Blackensop, and I hope we can make your stay enjoyable. The little man smiled. I'm sure it will be. This is my first visit to your wonderful country. I feel at home already. The eucalyptus trees, you know, and the brown hills. But your trip is primarily business. Yes, yes. My primary purpose is to study your road cities and report to my government on the advisability of trying to adapt your startling American methods to our social problems down under. I thought you understood that such was the reason I was sent to you. Yes, I did, in a general way. I don't know just what it is that you wish to find out. I suppose that you have heard about our road towns, how they came about, how they operate, and so forth. I've read a good bit, true, but I am not a technical man, Mr. Gaines, not an engineer. My field is social and political. I want to see how this remarkable technical change has affected your people. Suppose you tell me about the roads as if I were entirely ignorant, and I will ask questions. That seems a practical plan. By the way, how many are there in your party? Just myself. My secretary went on to Washington. I see. Gaines glanced at his wristwatch. It's nearly dinner time. Suppose we run up to the Stockton sector for dinner. 
There is a good Chinese restaurant up there that I'm partial to. It'll take us about an hour, and you can see the ways in operation while we ride. Excellent. Gaines pressed a button on his desk, and a picture formed on a large visor screen mounted on the opposite wall. It showed a strong-boned, angular young man seated at a semicircular control desk, which was backed by a complex instrument board. A cigarette was tucked in one corner of his mouth. The young man glanced up, grinned, and waved from the screen. Greetings and salutations, Chief. What can I do for you? Hi, Dave. You've got the evening watch, eh? I'm running up to the Stockton sector for dinner. Where's Van Cleek? Gone to a meeting somewhere. He didn't say. Anything to report? No, sir. The roads are rolling, and all the little people are going righty-righty home to their dinners. Okay. Keep them rolling. They'll roll, chief. Gaines snapped off the connection and turned to Bleckensomp. Van Cleek is my chief deputy. I wish he'd spend more time on the road and less on politics. Davidson can handle things, however. Shall we go? They glided down an electric staircase and debouched on the walkway which bordered the northbound five-mile-an-hour strip. After skirting a stairway trunk marked overpass to southbound road, they paused at the edge of the first strip. Have you ever ridden a conveyor strip before? Gaines inquired. It's quite simple. Just remember to face against the motion of the strip as you get on. They threaded their way through homeward-bound throngs, passing from strip to strip. Down the center of the twenty-mile-an-hour strip ran a glassite partition which reached nearly to the spreading roof. The Honorable Mr. Bleckensop raised his eyebrows inquiringly as he looked at it. Oh, that... Gaines answered the unspoken question as he slid back a panel door and ushered his guest through. That's a windbreak. If we didn't have some way of separating the air currents over the strips of different speeds, the wind would tear our clothes off on the hundred-mile-an-hour strip. He bent his head to Blackensops as he spoke in order to cut through the rush of air against the road surfaces. The noise of the crowd and the muted roar of the driving mechanism concealed beneath the moving strips. The combination of noises inhibited further conversation as they proceeded toward the middle of the roadway. After passing through three more windscreens located at the 40, 60, and 80-mile-an-hour strips, respectively, they finally reached the maximum speed strip, the 100-mile-an-hour strip, which made the round trip, San Diego to Reno and back, in 12 hours. Blackensop found himself on a walkway 20 feet wide, facing another partition. Immediately opposite him, an illuminated show window proclaimed, Jake's Steakhouse, number four, the fastest meal on the fastest road. To dine on the fly makes the miles roll by. Amazing, said Mr. Blackensop. It would be like dining in a tram. Is this really a proper restaurant? One of the best. Not fancy, but sound. Oh, I say, could we? Gaines smiled at him. You'd like to try it, wouldn't you, sir? I don't wish to interfere with your plans. Quite all right. I'm hungry myself, and Stockton is a long hour away. Let's go in. Gaines greeted the manageress as an old friend. Hello, Mrs. McCoy. How are you tonight? If it isn't the chief himself, it's a long time since we've had the pleasure of seeing your face. She led them to a booth somewhat detached from the crowd of dining commuters.
And will you and your friend be having dinner? Yes, Mrs. McCoy. Suppose you order for us, but be sure it includes one of your steaks. Two inches thick from a steer that died happy, she glided away, moving her fat frame with surprising grace. With sophisticated foreknowledge of the chief engineer's needs, Mrs. McCoy had left a portable telephone at the table. Gaines plugged it into an accommodation jack at the side of the booth and dialed a number. Hello, Davidson. Dave, this is the chief. I'm in Jake's Steakhouse number four for supper. You can reach me by calling 10L66. He replaced the handset, and Bleckensop inquired politely, Is it necessary for you to be available at all times? Not strictly necessary, Gaines told him. But I feel safer when I am in touch. Either Van Cleek or myself should be where the senior engineer of the watch, that's Davidson this shift, can get hold of us in a pinch. If it's a real emergency, I want to be there naturally. What would constitute a real emergency? Two things, principally. A power failure on the rotors would bring the road to a standstill and possibly strand millions of people a hundred miles or more from their homes. If it happened during a rush hour, you would have to evacuate those millions from the road. Not too easy to do. You say millions? As many as that? Yes, indeed. There are twelve million people dependent on this roadway, living and working in the buildings adjacent to it or within five miles of each side. The age of power blends into the age of transportation almost imperceptibly, but two events stand out as landmarks in the change. The invention of the sun power screen and the opening of the first moving road. The power resources of oil and coal of the United States had, save for a few sporadic outbreaks of common sense, been shamefully wasted in their development all through the first half of the 20th century. Simultaneously, the automobile, from its humble start as a one-lunged, horseless carriage, grew into a steel-bodied monster of over a hundred horsepower and capable of making more than a hundred miles an hour. They boiled over the countryside, like yeast in ferment. In the middle of the century, it was estimated that there was a motor vehicle for every two persons in the United States. They contained the seeds of their own destruction. Seventy million steel juggernauts, operated by imperfect human beings at high speed, are more destructive than war. In the same reference year, the premiums paid for compulsory liability and property damage insurance by automobile owners exceeded in amount the sum paid the same year to purchase automobiles. Safe driving campaigns were chronic phenomena, but were mere pious attempts to put Humpty Dumpty together again. It was not physically possible to drive safely in those crowded metropolises. Pedestrians were sardonically divided into two classes, the quick, and the dead. But a pedestrian could be defined as a man who had found a place to park his car. The automobile made possible huge cities, then choked those same cities to death with their numbers. In 1900, Herbert George Wells pointed out that the saturation point in the size of a city might be mathematically predicted in terms of its transportation facilities. From a standpoint of speed alone, the automobile made possible cities 200 miles in diameter. But traffic congestion and the inescapable inherent danger of high-powered, individually operated vehicles canceled out the possibility. 
Federal Highway Number 66 from Los Angeles to Chicago, the main street of America, was transformed into a superhighway for motor vehicles with an underspeed limit of 60 miles per hour. It was planned as a public works project to stimulate heavy industry. It had an unexpected byproduct. The great cities of Chicago and St. Louis stretched out urban pseudopods toward each other until they met near Bloomington, Illinois. The two parent cities actually shrank in population. The city of San Francisco replaced its antiquated cable cars with moving stairways powered with the Douglas Martin solar reception screens. The largest number of automobile licenses in history had been issued that calendar year, but the end of the automobile was in sight. The National Defense Act closed its era. This act, one of the most bitterly debated ever to be brought out of committee, declared petroleum to be an essential and limited material of war. The Army and Navy had first call on all oil, above or below the ground, and 70 million civilian vehicles faced short and expensive rations. Take the superhighways of the period, urban throughout their length. Add the mechanized streets of San Francisco's hills, Heat to boiling point with an imminent shortage of gasoline. Flavor with Yankee ingenuity. The first mechanized road was opened between Cincinnati and Cleveland. It was, as one would expect, comparatively primitive in design. The fastest strip moved only 30 miles per hour and was quite narrow, for no one had thought of the possibility of locating retail trade on the strips themselves. Nevertheless, it was a prototype of the social pattern which was to dominate the American scene within the next two decades, neither rural nor urban, but partaking equally of both, and based on rapid, safe, cheap, convenient transportation. Factories, wide, low buildings whose roofs were covered with solar power screens of the same type that drove the road, lined the roadway on each side. Back of them and interspersed among them were commercial hotels, retail stores, theaters, apartment houses. Beyond this long, thin, narrow strip was the open countryside where much of the population lived. Their homes dotted the hills, hung on the banks of creeks, and nestled between the farms. They worked in the city, but lived in the country, and the two were not ten minutes apart. Mrs. McCoy served the chief and his guest in person. They checked their conversation at the sight of the magnificent stakes. Up and down the 600-mile line, sector engineers of the watch were getting in their hourly reports from their subsector technicians. Subsector 1, check. Subsector 2, check. Tensiometer readings, voltage, load, bearing temperatures, synchrotachometer readings. Subsector 7, check. Hard-bitten, able men in dungarees who lived much of their lives down inside amidst the unmuted roar of the hundred-mile strip, the shrill whine of driving rotors, and the complaint of the relay rollers. Davidson studied the moving model of the road, spread out before him in the main control room at Fresno Sector. He watched the barely perceptible crawl of the miniature hundred-mile strip and subconsciously noted the reference number on it, which located Jake's Steakhouse Number 4. The chief would be getting into Stockton soon. He'd give him a ring after the hourly reports were in. Everything was quiet. Traffic tonnage, normal for rush hour. 
he would be sleepy before this watch was over. He turned to his cadet engineer of the watch. Mr. Barnes. Yes, sir. I think we could use some coffee. Good idea, sir. I'll order some as soon as the hourlies are in. The minute hand of the control board chronometer reached 12. The cadet watch officer threw a switch. All sectors, report, he said in crisp, self-conscious tones. The faces of two men flicked into view on the visor screen. The younger answered him with the same air of acting under supervision. Diego's circle, rolling. They were at once replaced by two more. Angela's sector, rolling. Then, Bakersfield sector, rolling. And Stockton sector, rolling. Finally, when Reno's circle had reported, the cadet turned to Davidson and reported, Rolling, sir. Very well. Keep them rolling. The visor screen flashed on once more. Sacramento sector, supplementary report. Proceed. Cadet Engineer Gunter, while on visual inspection as Cadet Sector Engineer of the Watch, found Cadet Engineer Alec Jeans on watch as Cadet Subsector Technician and R.J. Ross, Technician Second Class, on watch as Technician for the same subsector, engaged in playing cards. It was not possible to tell with any accuracy how long they had neglected to patrol their subsector. Any damage? One rotor running hot but still synchronized, it was jacked down and replaced. Very well. Have the paymaster give Ross his time and turn him over to the civil authorities. Place Cadet Jeans under arrest and order him to report to me. Very well, sir. Keep them rolling. Davidson turned back to control desk and dialed Chief Engineer Gaines' temporary number. You mentioned that there were two things that could cause major trouble on the road, Mr. Gaines but you spoke only of power failure to the rotors. Gaines pursued an elusive bit of salad before answering. There really isn't a second major trouble. It won't happen. However, we are traveling along here at 100 miles per hour. Can you visualize what would happen if this strip under us should break? Mr. Bluckensop shifted nervously in his chair. Hmm, <laughs> Rather a disconcerting idea, don't you think? I mean to say, one is hardly aware that one is traveling at high speed here in this snug room. What would the result be? Don't let it worry you. The strip can't part. It is built up of overlapping sections in such a fashion that it has a safety factor of better than twelve to one. Several miles of rotors would have to shut down all at once, and the circuit breakers for the rest of the line fail to trip out before there could possibly be sufficient tension on the strip to cause it to part. But it happened once on the Philadelphia-Jersey City Road, and we aren't likely to forget it. It was one of the earliest high-speed roads, carrying a tremendous passenger traffic, as well as heavy freight since it serviced a heavily industrialized area. The strip was hardly more than a conveyor belt, and no one had foreseen the weight it would carry. It happened under maximum load, naturally, when the high-speed way was crowded. The part of the strip behind the brake buckled for miles, crushing passengers against the roof at 80 miles per hour. The section forward of the brake cracked like a whip, spilling passengers onto the slower ways, dropping them on the exposed rollers and rotors down inside and snapping them up against the roof. 
Over 3,000 people were killed in that one accident, and there was much agitation to abolish the roads. They were even shut down for a week by presidential order, but he was forced to reopen them again. There was no alternative. Really? Why not? The country had become economically dependent on the roads. They were the principal means of transportation in the industrial areas, the only means of economic importance. Factories were shut down. Food didn't move. People got hungry. And the president was forced to let them roll again. It was the only thing that could be done. The social pattern had crystallized in one form, and it couldn't be changed overnight. A large industrialized population must have large-scale transportation, not only for people, but for trade. Mr. Blackensop fussed with his napkin, and rather diffidently suggested, Mr. Gaines, I do not intend to disparage the ingenious accomplishments of your great people, but isn't it possible that you may have put too many eggs in one basket in allowing your whole economy to become dependent on the functioning of one type of machinery? Gaines considered this soberly. I see your point. Yes and no. Every civilization above the peasant and village type is dependent on some key type of machinery. The Old South was based on the cotton gin. Imperial England was made possible by the steam engine. Large populations have to have machines for power, for transportation, and for manufacturing in order to live. Had it not been for machinery, the large populations could never have grown up. That's not a fault of the machine. That's its virtue. But it is true that whenever we develop machinery to the point where it will support large populations at a high standard of living, we are then bound to keep that machinery running or suffer the consequences. But the real hazard in that is not the machinery, but the men who run the machinery. These roads as machines are all right. They are strong and safe and will do everything they were designed to do. No, it's not the machines, it's the men. When a population is dependent upon a machine, they are hostages of the men who tend the machines. If their morale is high, their sense of duty strong. Someone up near the front of the restaurant had turned up the volume control of the radio, letting out a blast of music that drowned out Gaines's words. When the sound had been tapered down to a more nearly bearable volume, he was saying, Listen to that. It illustrates my point. Blackensop turned an ear to the music. It was a swinging march of compelling rhythm with a modern interpretive arrangement. One could hear the roar of machinery, the repetitive clatter of mechanisms. A pleased smile of recognition spread over the Australian's face. It's your field artillery song, the roll of the caissons, isn't it? But I don't see the connection. You're right. It was the role of the caissons, but we adapted it to our own purposes. It's the road song of the transport cadets, too. Wait. The persistent throb of the march continued and seemed to blend with the vibration of the roadway underneath into a single timpano. Then a male chorus took up the verse. Hear them hum, watch them run. Oh, our job is never done for our roadways go rolling along. While you ride, while you glide, we are watching down inside. So your roadways keep rolling along. Oh, it's high, high he, the rotor men are we. 
check off the sectors loud and strong. One, two, three. Anywhere you go, you are bound to know that your roadways are rolling along. Keep them rolling, that your roadways are rolling along. See, said Gaines with more animation in his voice. See, that is the real purpose of the United States Academy of Transport. That is the reason why the transport engineers are a semi-military profession with strict discipline. We are the bottleneck, the sine qua non of all industry, all economic life. Other industries can go on strike and only create temporary and partial dislocations. Crops can fail here and there, and the country takes up the slack. But if the roads stop rolling, everything else must stop. The effect would be the same as a general strike, with this important difference. It takes a majority of the population fired by a real feeling of grievance to create a general strike. But the men that run the roads, few as they are, can create the same complete paralysis. We had just one strike on the roads back in 60. It was justified, I think, and it corrected a lot of real abuses. But it mustn't happen again. But what is to prevent it from happening again, Mr. Gaines? Morale, esprit de corps. The technicians in the road service are indoctrinated constantly with the idea that their job is a sacred trust. Besides, we do everything we can to build up their social position. But even more important is the academy. We try to turn out graduate engineers imbued with the same loyalty, the same iron self-discipline and determination to perform their duty to the community at any cost, that Annapolis and West Point and Goddard are so successful in inculcating in their graduates. Goddard? Oh, yes, the rocket field. And have you been successful, do you think? Not entirely, perhaps, but we will be. It takes time to build up a tradition. And the oldest engineer is a man who entered the academy in his teens. We can afford to relax a little and treat it as a solved problem. I suppose you are a graduate. Gaines grinned. You flatter me. I must look younger than I am. No, I'm a carryover from the army. You see, the War Department operated the roads for some three months during reorganization after the strike in 60. I served on the conciliation board that awarded pay increases and adjusted working conditions. Then I was assigned... The signal light of the portable telephone glowed red. Gaines said, excuse me, and picked up the handset. Yes? Blackensop could overhear the voice at the other end. This is Davidson, Chief. The roads are rolling. Very well. Keep them rolling. Had another trouble report from the Sacramento sector. Again? What this time? Before Davidson could reply, he was cut off. As Gaines reached out to dial him back, his coffee cup, half full, landed in his lap. Blekensop was aware, even as he was lurched against the edge of the table, of a disquieting change in the hum of the roadway. What has happened, Mr. Gaines? Don't know. Emergency stop. God knows why. He was dialing furiously. Shortly, he flung the phone down without bothering to return the handset to its cradle. Phones are out. Come on. No, you'll be safe here. Wait. Must I? Well, come along then and stick close to me.
he turned away, having dismissed the Australian cabinet minister from his mind. The strip ground slowly to a rest, the giant rotors and myriad rollers acting as flywheels in preventing a disastrous sudden stop. Already a little knot of commuters, disturbed at their evening meal, were attempting to crowd out the door of the restaurant. Halt! There is something about a command issued by one used to being obeyed which enforces compliance. It may be intonation or possibly a more esoteric power, such as animal tamers are reputed to be able to exercise in controlling ferocious beasts. But it does exist, and can be used to compel even those not habituated to obedience. The commuters stopped in their tracks. Gaines continued, Remain in the restaurant until we are ready to evacuate you. I am the chief engineer. You will be in no danger here. You, he pointed to a big fellow near the door. You're deputized. Don't let anyone leave without proper authority. Mrs. McCoy, resume serving dinner. Gaines strode out the door, Blackensop tagging along. The situation outside permitted no such simple measures. The hundred-mile strip alone had stopped. Twenty feet away, the next strip flew by at an unchecked ninety-five miles an hour. The passengers on it flickered past, unreal cardboard figures. The twenty-foot walkway of the maximum speed strip had been crowded when the breakdown occurred. Now the customers of shops, of lunch stands, and of other places of business, the occupants of lounges, of television theaters, all came crowding out onto the walkway to see what had happened. The first disaster struck almost immediately. The crowd surged and pushed against a middle-aged woman on its outer edge. In attempting to recover her balance, she put one foot over the edge of the flashing 95-mile strip. She realized her gruesome error, for she screamed before her foot touched the ribbon. She spun around and landed heavily on the moving strip and was rolled by it as the strip attempted to impart to her mass at one blow a velocity of 95 miles per hour, 139 feet per second. As she rolled, she mowed down some of the cardboard figures as a sickle strikes a stand of grass. Quickly, she was out of sight, her identity, her injuries, and her fate undetermined and already remote. But the consequences of her mishap were not done with. One of the flickering cardboard figures bowled over by her relative moment fell toward the hundred-mile strip, slammed into the shock-bound crowd, and suddenly appeared as a live man, but broken and bleeding, amidst the luckless, fallen victims whose bodies had checked his wild flight. Even there it did not end. The disaster spread from its source, each hapless human ninepin more likely than not to knock down others so that they fell over the danger-laden boundary and in turn ricocheted to a dearly bought equilibrium. But the focus of calamity sped out of sight and Blekensop could see no more. His active mind, accustomed to dealing with large numbers of individual human beings, multiplied the tragic sequence he had witnessed by 1,200 miles of thronged conveyor strip, and his stomach chilled. To Blackensop's surprise, Gaines made no effort to succor the fallen, nor to quell the fear-infected mob, but turned an expressionless face back to the restaurant. When Blackensop saw that he was actually re-entering the restaurant, he plucked at Gaines's sleeve. Aren't we going to help those poor people? 
The cold planes of the face of the man who answered him bore no resemblance to his genial, rather boyish host of a few minutes before. No, bystanders can help them. I've got the whole road to think of. Don't bother me. Crushed and somewhat indignant, the politician did as he was ordered. Rationally, he knew that the chief engineer was right. A man responsible for the safety of millions cannot turn aside from his duty to render personal service to one. But the cold detachment of such a viewpoint was repugnant to him. Gaines was back in the restaurant. Mrs. McCoy, where's your getaway? In the pantry, sir. Gaines hurried there, Bleckensop at his heels. A nervous Filipino salad boy shrank out of Gaines's way as he casually swept a supply of prepared greenstuffs onto the floor and stepped up on the counter where they had rested. Directly above his head and within reach was a circular manhole, counterweighted and operated by a hand wheel set in its center. A short steel ladder, hinged to the edge of the opening, was swung up flat to the ceiling and secured by a hook. Bleckensop lost his hat in his endeavor to clamber quickly enough up the ladder after Gaines. When he emerged on the roof of the building, Gaines was searching the ceiling of the roadway with a pocket flashlight. He was shuffling along, stooped double in the awkward four feet of space between the roof underfoot and ceiling. He found what he sought, some fifty feet away, another manhole similar to the one they had used to escape from below. He spun the wheel of the lock and stood up in the space, then rested his hands on the sides of the opening, and with a single lithe movement vaulted to the roof of the roadways. His companion followed him with more difficulty. They stood in darkness, a fine, cold rain feeling at their faces. But underfoot, and stretching beyond sight on each hand, the sun power screens glowed with a faint opalescent radiance their slight percentage of inefficiency as transformers of radiant sun power to available electrical power being evidenced as a mild induced radioactivity. The effect was not illumination, but rather like the ghostly sheen of a snow-covered plain seen by starlight. The glow picked out the path they must follow to reach the rain-obscured wall of buildings bordering the ways. The path was a narrow black stripe which arched away into the darkness over the low curve of the roof. They started away on this path at a dog trot, making as much speed as the slippery footing in the dark permitted. While Bleckensop's mind still fretted at the problem of Gaines's apparently callous detachment, although possessed of a keen intelligence, his nature was dominated by a warm human sympathy without which no politician, irrespective of other virtues or shortcomings, is long successful. Because of this trait, he distrusted instinctively any mind which was guided by logic alone. He was aware that, from a standpoint of strict logic, no reasonable case could be made out for the continued existence of human race, still less for the human values he served. Had he been able to pierce the preoccupation of his companion, he would have been reassured. On the surface, Gaines's exceptionally intelligent mind was clicking along with the facile ease of an electromechanical integrator, arranging data at hand, making tentative decisions, postponing judgments without prejudice until necessary data were available, exploring alternatives. Underneath, in a compartment insulated by stern self-discipline from the acting theater of his mind, his emotions were a torturing storm of self-reproach. 
He was heartsick at the suffering he had seen, and which he knew too well was duplicated up and down the line. Although he was not aware of any personal omission, nevertheless, the fault was somehow his, for authority creates responsibility. He had carried too long the superhuman burden of kingship, which no sane mind can carry lightheartedly, and was at this moment perilously close to the frame of mind which sends captains down with their ships. But the need for immediate constructive action sustained him. But no trace of this conflict reached his features. At the wall of buildings glowed a green line of arrows, pointing to the left. Over them, at the terminus of the narrow path, shone a sign, Access Down. They pursued this, Blackensop puffing in Gaines's wake, to a door let in the wall, which gave into a narrow stairway lighted by a single glow tube. Gaines plunged down this, still followed, and they emerged on the crowded, noisy, stationary walkway adjoining the northbound road. Immediately adjacent to the stairway on the right was a public telebooth. Through the glassite door, they could see a portly, well-dressed man speaking earnestly to his female equivalent, mirrored in the visor screen. Three other citizens were waiting outside the booth. Gaines pushed past them, flung open the door, grasped the bewildered and indignant man by the shoulders and hustled him outside, kicking the door closed after him. He cleared the visor screen with one sweep of his hand before the matron pictured therein could protest and press the emergency priority button. He dialed his private code number and was shortly looking into the troubled face of his engineer of the watch, Davidson. Report. It's you, chief. Thank God. Where are you? Davidson's relief was pathetic. Report. The senior watch officer repressed his emotion and complied in direct, clipped phrases. At 7.09 p.m., the consolidated tension reading, Strip 20, Sacramento Sector, climbed suddenly. Before action could be taken, tension on Strip 20 passed emergency level. The interlocks acted, and power to subject's strip cut out. Cause of failure unknown. Direct communication to Sacramento Control Office has failed. They do not answer the auxiliary nor commercial. Effort to reestablish communication continues. Messenger dispatched from Stockton, subsector 10. No casualties reported. Warning broadcast by public announcement circuit to keep clear of Strip 19. Evacuation has commenced. There are casualties, Gaines cut in. Police and hospital emergency routine. Move. Yes, sir, Davidson snapped back and hooked a thumb over his shoulder, but his cadet officer of the watch had already jumped to comply. Shall I cut out the rest of the road, chief? No, no more casualties are likely after the first disorder. Keep up the broadcast warnings. Keep those other strips rolling, or we will have a traffic jam the devil himself couldn't untangle. Gaines had in mind the impossibility of bringing the strips up to speed under load. The rotors were not powerful enough to do this. If the entire road was stopped, he would have to evacuate every strip, correct the trouble on strip 20 bring all strips up to speed, and then move the accumulated peak load traffic. In the meantime, over five million stranded passengers would constitute a tremendous police problem. It was simpler to evacuate passengers on strip 20 over the roof and allow them to return home via the remaining strips. Notify the mayor and the governor that I have assumed emergency authority. 
Same to the chief of police and place him under your orders. Tell the commandant to arm all cadets available and await orders. Move. Yes, sir. Shall I recall technicians off watch? No, this isn't an engineering failure. Take a look at your readings. That entire sector went out simultaneously. Somebody cut out those rotors by hand. Place off-watch technicians on standby status, but don't arm them, and don't send them down inside. Tell the Commandant to rush all available senior class cadets to Stockton Subsector Office Number 10 to report to me. I want them equipped with tumble bugs, pistols, and sleep gas bombs. Yes, sir. A clerk leaned over Davidson's shoulder and said something in his ear. The governor wants to talk to you, chief. Can't do it, nor can you. Who's your relief? Have you sent for him? A Hubbard. He's just come in. Have him talk to the governor, the mayor, the press, anybody that calls, even the White House. You stick to your watch. I'm cutting off. I'll be back in communication as quickly as I can locate a reconnaissance car. He was out of the booth almost before the screen cleared. Blackensop did not venture to speak, but followed him out to the northbound, twenty-mile strip. There Gaines stopped, short of the windbreak, turned, and kept his eyes on the wall beyond the stationary walkway. He picked out some landmark or sign, not apparent to his companion, and did an Eliza crossing the ice back to the walkway, so rapidly that Blackensop was carried some hundred feet beyond him and almost failed to follow when Gaines ducked into a doorway and ran down a flight of stairs. They came out on a narrow lower walkway down inside. The pervading din claimed them, beat upon their bodies as well as their ears. Dimly, Blackensop perceived their surroundings as he struggled to face that wall of sound. Facing him, illuminated by the red monochrome of a neon arc, was one of the rotors that drove the five-mile strip, its great drum-shaped armature revolving slowly around the stationary field coils in its core. The upper surface of the drum pressed against the underside of the moving way and imparted to it its stately progress. To the left and right, a hundred yards each way, and beyond, at similar intervals, farther than he could see, were other rotors. Bridging the gaps between the rotors were the slender rollers, crowded together like cigars in a box, in order that the strip might have a continuous rolling support. The rollers were supported by steel girder arches, through the gaps of which he saw row after row of rotors in staggered succession, the rotors in each succeeding row turning over more rapidly than the last. Separated from the narrow walkway by a line of supporting steel pillars, and lying parallel to it on the side away from the rotors, ran a shallow paved causeway, joined to the walk at this point by a ramp. Gaines peered up and down this tunnel in evident annoyance. Blackensop started to ask him what troubled him, but found his voice snuffed out by the sound. He could not cut through the roar of thousands of rotors and the whine of hundreds of thousands of rollers. Gaines saw his lips move and guessed at the question. He cupped his hands around Blackensop's right ear and shouted, No car! I expected to find a car here! The Australian, wishing to be helpful, grasped Gaines's arm and pointed back into the jungle of machinery. Gaines's eye followed the direction indicated and picked out something that he had missed in his preoccupation. A half dozen men working around a rotor several strips away. 
They had jacked down a rotor until it was no longer in contact with the road surface and were preparing to replace it in toto. The replacement rotor was standing by on a low, heavy truck. The chief engineer gave a quick smile of acknowledgement and thanks and aimed his flashlight at the group. The beam focused down to a slender, intense needle of light. One of the technicians looked up, and Gaines snapped the light on and off in a repeated, irregular pattern. A figure detached itself from the group and ran toward them. It was a slender young man, dressed in dungarees and topped off with ear pads, and an incongruous pillbox cap, bright with gold braid and insignia. He recognized the chief engineer and saluted, his face falling into humorless, boyish intentness. Gaines stuffed his torch into a pocket and commenced to gesticulate rapidly with both hands. Clear, clean gestures, as involved and as meaningful as deaf-mute language. Blackensop dug into his own dilettante knowledge of anthropology and decided that it was most like an American Indian sign language, with some of the finger movements of hula. But it was necessarily almost entirely strange, being adapted for a particular terminology. The cadet answered him in kind, stepped to the edge of the causeway, and flashed his torch to the south. He picked out a car, still some distance away, but approaching at headlong speed. It braked and came to a stop alongside them. It was a small affair, ovoid in shape and poised on two centerline wheels. The forward upper surface swung up and disclosed the driver, another cadet. Gaines addressed him briefly in sign language, then hustled Blackensop ahead of him into the cramped passenger compartment. As the glassite hood was being swung back into place, a blast of wind smote them, and the Australian looked up in time to glimpse the last of three much larger vehicles hurtle past them. They were headed north, at a speed of not less than 200 miles per hour. Blackensop thought that he had made out the little hats of cadets through the windows of the last of the three, but he could not be sure. He had no time to wonder, so violent was the driver's getaway. Gaines ignored the accelerating surge. He was already calling Davidson on the built-in communicator. Comparative silence had settled down once the car was closed. The face of a female operator at the relay station showed on the screen. Get me Davidson, senior watch office. Oh, it's Mr. Gaines. The mayor wants to talk to you, Mr. Gaines. Refer him and get me Davidson. Move. Yes, sir. And see here, leave this circuit hooked into Davidson's board until I tell you personally to cut it. Right. Her face gave way to the watch officers. That you, chief. We're moving. Progress okay. No change. Very well. You'll be able to raise me on this circuit or at subsector 10 office. Clearing now. Davidson's face gave way to the relay operator. Your wife is calling, Mr. Gaines. Will you take it? Gaines muttered something not quite gallant and answered, Yes. Mrs. Gaines flashed into facsimile. He burst into speech before she could open her mouth. Darling, I'm all right. Don't worry. I'll be home when I get there. I've got to go now. It was all out in one breath, and he slapped the control that cleared the screen. They slammed to a breathtaking stop alongside the stair leading to the watch office of subsector 10 and piled out. Three big lorries were drawn up on the ramp, and three platoons of cadets were ranged in restless ranks alongside them. 
Tumblebugs, small, open monocycles used to patrol down inside, were ready nearby. A cadet trotted up to Gaines and saluted. Lindsay, sir, cadet engineer of the watch. The engineer of the watch requests that you come at once to the control room. The engineer of the watch looked up as they came in. Chief, Van Cleek is calling you. Put him on. When Van Cleek appeared in the big visor, Gaines greeted him with, Hello, Van. Where are you? Sacramento office. Now listen. Sacramento. That's good. Report. Van Cleek looked disgruntled. Report? Hell, I'm not your deputy anymore, Gaines. Now you- What the hell are you talking about? Listen, and don't interrupt me and you'll find out. You're through, Gaines. I've been picked as director of the Provisional Control Committee for the New Order. Van, have you gone off your rocker? What do you mean, the New Order? You'll find out. This is it. The Functionalist Revolution. We're in, you're out. We stopped Strip 20 just to give you a little taste of what we can do. Concerning Function, a treatise on the natural order in society, the Bible of the Functionalist Movement was first published in 1930. It claimed to be a scientifically accurate theory of social relations, the author, Paul Decker, disclaimed the outworn and futile ideas of democracy and human equality, and substituted a system in which human beings were evaluated functionally, that is to say, by the role each filled in the economic sequence. The underlying thesis was that it was right and proper for a man to exercise over his fellows whatever power was inherent in his function, and that any other form of social organization was silly visionary and contrary to the natural order. The complete interdependence of modern economic life seems to have escaped him entirely. His ideas were dressed up with a glib, mechanistic pseudo-psychology based on the observed orders of precedence among barnyard fowls and on the famous Pavlov conditioned reflex experiments on dogs. He failed to note that human beings are neither dogs nor chickens, Old Dr. Pavlov ignored him entirely, as he had ignored so many others who had blindly and unscientifically dogmatized about the meaning of his important but strictly limited experiments. Functionalism did not take hold at once. During the 30s, almost everyone, from truck driver to hat-check girl, had a scheme for setting the world right in six easy lessons, and a surprising percentage managed to get their schemes published but it gradually spread. Functionalism was particularly popular among little people everywhere who could persuade themselves that their particular jobs were the indispensable ones, and that therefore, under the natural order, they would be top dogs. With so many different functions actually indispensable, such self-persuasion was easy. Gaines stared at Van Cleek for a moment before replying. Van, he said slowly, you don't really think you can get away with this, do you? The little man puffed out his chest. Why not? We have gotten away with it. You can't start Strip 20 until I am ready to let you, and I can stop the whole road if necessary. Gaines was becoming uncomfortably aware that he was dealing with unreasonable conceit and held himself patiently in check. Sure you can, Van, 
but how about the rest of the country? Do you think the United States Army will sit quietly by and let you run California as your private kingdom? Van Cleek looked sly. I've planned for that. I've just finished broadcasting a manifesto to all the road technicians in the country, telling them what we have done and telling them to arise and claim their rights. With every road in the country stopped and people getting hungry, I reckon the president will think twice before sending the army to tangle with us. Oh, he could send a force to capture or kill me. I'm not afraid to die. But he doesn't dare start shooting down road technicians as a class, because the country can't get along without us. Consequently, he'll have to get along with us on our terms. There was much bitter truth in what he said. If an uprising of the road technicians became general, the government could no more attempt to settle it by force than a man could afford to cure a headache by blowing out his brains. But was the uprising general? Why do you think that the technicians in the rest of the country will follow your lead? Why not? It's the natural order of things. This is an age of machinery. The real power everywhere is in the technicians, but they have been kidded into not using their power with a lot of obsolete catchphrases. And of all the classes of technicians, the most important, the absolutely essential are the road technicians. From now on, they run the show. It's the natural order of things. He turned away for a moment and fussed with some papers on the desk before him. Then he added, That's all for now, Gaines. I've got to call the White House and let the President know how things stand. You carry on and behave yourself and you won't get hurt. Gaines sat quite still for some minutes after the screen cleared. So that's how it was. He wondered what effect, if any, Van Cleek's invitation to strike had had on road technicians elsewhere. None, he thought. But then he had not dreamed that it could happen among his own technicians. Perhaps he had made a mistake in refusing to take time to talk to anyone outside the road. No, if he had stopped to talk to the governor or the newspaper men, he would still be talking. Still, he dialed Davidson. Any trouble in any other sectors, Dave? No, chief. Or on any other road? None reported. Did you hear my talk with Van Cleek? I was cut in. Yes. Good. Have Hubbard call the president and the governor and tell them that I am strongly opposed to the use of military force as long as the outbreak is limited to this one road. Tell them that I will not be responsible if they move in before I ask for help. Davidson looked dubious. Do you think that is wise, chief? I do. If we try to blast Van and his Red Hots out of their position, we may set off a real countrywide uprising. Furthermore, he could wreck the roads that God himself couldn't put it back together. What's your rolling tonnage now? A 53% under evening peak. How about strip 20? Almost evacuated. Good. Get the road clear of all traffic as fast as possible. Better have the chief of police place a guard on all entrances to the road to keep out new traffic. Van may stop all the strips any time, or I may need to myself. Here is my plan. I'm going down inside with these armed cadets. We will work north, overcoming any resistance we meet. You arrange for watch technicians and maintenance crews to follow immediately behind us. Each rotor as they come to it is to be cut out, then hooked into the Stockton control board. It will be a haywire rig with no safety interlocks, 
so use enough watch technicians to be able to catch trouble before it happens. If this scheme works, we can move control of the Sacramento sector right out from under Van's feet, and he can stay in his Sacramento control office until he gets hungry enough to be reasonable. He cut off and turned to the subsector engineer of the watch. Edmonds, give me a helmet and a pistol. Yes, sir. He opened a drawer and handed his chief a slender, deadly-looking weapon. Gaines belted it on and accepted a helmet, into which he crammed his head, leaving the anti-noise ear flaps up. Bleckensop cleared his throat. May, uh, may I have one of those helmets? He inquired. What? Gaines focused his attention. Oh, you won't need one, Mr. Bleckensop. I want you to remain right here until you hear from me. But- the Australian statesman started to speak, thought better of it, and subsided. From the doorway, the cadet engineer of the watch demanded the chief engineer's attention. Mr. Gaines, there's a technician out here who insists on seeing you, a man named Harvey. Can't do it. He's from the Sacramento sector, sir. Oh, send him in. Harvey quickly advised Gaines of what he had seen and heard at the guild meeting that afternoon. I got disgusted and left while they were still jawing, chief. I didn't think any more about it until strip 20 stopped rolling. Then I heard that the trouble was in Sacramento sector and decided to look you up. How long has this been building up? Quite some time, I guess. You know how it is. There are a few soreheads everywhere, and a lot of them are functionalists. But you can't refuse to work with a man just because he holds different political views. It's a free country. You should have come to me before, Harvey. Harvey looked stubborn. Gaines studied his face. No, I guess you are right. It's my business to keep tabs on your mates, not yours. As you say, it's a free country. Anything else? Well, now that it has come to this, I thought maybe I could help you pick out the ringleaders. Thanks. You stick with me. We are going down inside and try to clear up this mess. The office door opened suddenly, and a technician and a cadet appeared, lugging a burden between them. They deposited it on the floor and waited. It was a young man, quite evidently dead. The front of his dungaree jacket was soggy with blood. Gaines looked at the watch officer. Who is he? Edmonds broke his stare and answered. Cadet Hughes. He's the messenger I sent to Sacramento when communication failed. When he didn't report, I sent Marston and Cadet Jenkins after him. Gaines muttered something to himself and turned away. Come along, Harvey. The cadets waiting below had changed in mood. Gaines noted that the boyish intentness for excitement had been replaced by something uglier. There was much exchange of hand signals, and several appeared to be checking the loading of their pistols. He sized them up, then signaled to the cadet leader. There was a short interchange of signals. The cadet saluted, turned to his men, gesticulated briefly, and brought his arm down smartly. They filed upstairs and into an empty standby room, Gaines following. Once inside and the noise shut out, he addressed them. You saw Hughes brought in. How many of you want a chance to kill the louse that did it? Three of the cadets reacted almost at once, breaking ranks and striding forward. Gaines looked at them coldly. Very well. You three turn in your weapons and return to your quarters. Any of the rest of you that think this is a matter of private revenge or a hunting party may join them. 
He permitted a short silence to endure before continuing. Sacramento's sector has been seized by unauthorized persons. We are going to retake it, if possible, without loss of life on either side, and, if possible, without stopping the roads. The plan is to take over down inside, rotor by rotor, and cross-connect through Stockton. The task assignment of this group is to proceed north down inside, locating and overpowering all persons in your path. You will bear in mind the probability that most of the persons you will arrest are completely innocent. Consequently, you will favor the use of sleep gas bombs and will shoot to kill only as a last resort. Cadet Captain, assign your men in squads of ten each with squad leader. Each squad is to form a skirmish line across, down inside, mounted on tumble bugs, and will proceed north at 15 miles per hour. Leave an interval of 100 yards between successive waves of skirmishers. Whenever a man is sighted, the entire leading wave will converge on him, arrest him, and deliver him to a transport car, then reform in the rear of the last wave. You will assign the transports that delivered you here to hold prisoners. Instruct the drivers to keep abreast of the second wave. You will assign an attack group to recapture subsector control officers, but no office is to be attacked until its subsector has been cross-connected with Stockton. Arrange liaison accordingly. Any questions? He let his eyes run over the faces of the young men. When no one spoke up, he turned back to the cadet in charge. Very well, sir. Carry out your orders. By the time the dispositions had been completed, the follow-up crew of technicians had arrived, and Gaines had given the engineer in charge his instructions. The cadets stood to horse alongside their poised tumblebugs. The cadet captain looked expectantly at Gaines. He nodded. The cadet brought his arm down smartly, and the first wave mounted and moved off. Gaines and Harvey mounted tumblebugs and kept abreast of the cadet captain, some twenty-five yards behind the leading wave. It had been a long time since the chief engineer had ridden one of these silly-looking little vehicles, and he felt awkward. A tumblebug does not give a man dignity, since it is about the size and shape of a kitchen stool, gyro-stabilized on a single wheel. But it is perfectly adapted to patrolling the maze of machinery down inside, since it can go through an opening the width of a man's shoulders, is easily controlled, and will stand patiently upright, waiting should its rider dismount. The little reconnaissance car followed Gaines at a short interval, weaving in and out among the rotors, while the television and audio communicator inside continued as Gaines's link to his other manifold responsibilities. The first two hundred yards of Sacramento sector passed without incident. Then one of the skirmishers sighted a tumblebug parked by a rotor. The technician it served was checking the gauges at the rotor's base and did not see them approach. He was unarmed and made no resistance, but seemed surprised and indignant as well as very bewildered. The little command group dropped back and permitted the new leading wave to overtake them. Three miles farther along, the score stood 37 men arrested, none killed. Two of the cadets had received minor wounds and had been directed to retire. Only four of the prisoners had been armed. One of these Harvey had been able to identify definitely as a ringleader, Harvey expressed a desire to attempt to parley with the outlaws if any occasion arose. Gaines agreed tentatively. He knew of Harvey's long and honorable record as a labor leader and was willing to try anything that offered a hope of success with a minimum of violence. 
Shortly thereafter, the first wave flushed another technician. He was on the far side of a rotor. They were almost on him before he was seen. He did not attempt to resist, although he was armed, and the incident would not have been worth recording had he not been talking into a hushaphone which he had plugged into the telephone jack at the base of the rotor. Gaines reached the group as the capture was being effected. He snatched at the soft rubber mask of the phone, jerking it away from the man's mouth so violently that he could feel the bone conduction receiver grate between the man's teeth. The prisoner spat out a piece of broken tooth and glared, but ignored attempts to question him. Swift as Gaines had been, it was highly probable that they had lost the advantage of surprise. It was necessary to assume that the prisoner had succeeded in reporting the attack going on beneath the ways. Word was passed down the line to proceed with increased caution. Gaines's pessimism was justified shortly. Riding toward them appeared a group of men as yet several hundred feet away. There were at least a score, but their exact strength could not be determined as they took advantage of the rotors for cover as they advanced. Harvey looked at Gaines, who nodded, and signaled the cadet captain to halt his forces. Harvey went on ahead, unarmed, his hands held high above his head, and steering by balancing the weight of his body. The outlaw party checked its speed uncertainly and finally stopped. Harvey approached within a couple of rods of them and stopped likewise. One of them, apparently the leader, spoke to him in sign language, to which he replied. They were too far away and the red light too uncertain to follow the discussion. It continued for several minutes, then ensued a pause. The leader seemed uncertain what to do. One of his party rolled forward, returned his pistol to its holster, and conversed with the leader. The leader shook his head at the man's violent gestures. The man renewed his argument, but met the same negative response. With a final disgusted wave of his hands, he desisted, drew his pistol, and shot at Harvey. Harvey grabbed at his middle and leaned forward. The man shot again. Harvey jerked and slid to the ground. The cadet captain beat Gaines to the draw. The killer looked up as the bullet hit him. He looked as if he were puzzled by some strange occurrence, being too freshly dead to be aware of it. The cadets came in shooting. Although the first wave was outnumbered better than two to one, they were helped by the comparative demoralization of the enemy. The odds were nearly even after the first ragged volley. Less than thirty seconds after the first treacherous shot, all of the insurgent party were dead, wounded, or under arrest. Gaines's losses were two dead, including the murder of Harvey, and two wounded. Gaines modified his tactics to suit the changed conditions. Now that secrecy was gone, speed and striking power were of first importance. The second wave was directed to close in practically to the heels of the first. The third wave was brought up to within twenty-five yards of the second. These three waves were to ignore unarmed men, leaving them to be picked up by the fourth wave, but they were directed to shoot on sight any person carrying arms. Gaines cautioned them to shoot to wound rather than to kill, but he realized that his admonishment was almost impossible to obey. There would be killing. Well, he had not wanted it, but he felt that he had no choice. Any armed outlaw was a potential killer. He could not, in fairness to his own men, lay too many restrictions on them. 
When the arrangements for the new marching order were completed, he signed the cadet captain to go ahead, and the first and second waves started off together at the top speed of which the tumblebugs were capable, not quite eighteen miles per hour. Gaines followed them. He swerved to avoid Harvey's body, glancing involuntarily down as he did so. The face was set in a death mask of rugged beauty in which the strong fiber of the dead man's character was evident. Seeing this, Gaines did not regret so much his order to shoot, but the deep sense of loss of personal honor lay more heavily on him than before. They passed several technicians during the next few minutes, but had no occasion to shoot. Gaines was beginning to feel somewhat hopeful of a reasonably bloodless victory when he noticed a change in the pervading throb of machinery, which penetrated even through the heavy anti-noise pads of his helmet. He lifted an ear pad in time to hear the end of a rumbling diminuendo as the rotors and rollers slowed to rest. The road was stopped. He shouted to the cadet captain, Halt your men! His words echoed hollowly in the unreal silence. The top of the reconnaissance car swung up as he turned and hurried to it. Chief, the cadet within called out. Relay station calling you. The girl in the visor screen gave way to Davidson as soon as she recognized Gaines's face. Chief, Davidson said at once. Van Cleek's calling you. Who stopped the road? He did. Any other major change in the situation? No, the road was practically empty when he stopped it. Good. Give me Van Cleek. The chief conspirator's face was livid with uncurbed anger when he identified Gaines. He burst into speech. So, you thought I was fooling, eh? What do you think now, Mr. Chief Engineer Gaines? Gaines fought down an impulse to tell him exactly what he thought, particularly about Van Cleek. Everything about the short man's manner affected him like a squeaking slate pencil but he could not afford the luxury of speaking his mind. He strove to get just the proper tone into his voice, which would soothe the other man's vanity. I've got to admit that you've won this trick, Van. The road is stopped. But don't think I didn't take you seriously. I've watched you work too long to underrate you. I know you mean what you say. Van Cleek was pleased by the tribute, but tried not to show it. Then why don't you get smart and give up, he demanded belligerently. You can't win. Maybe not, Van, but you know I've got to try. Besides, he went on, why can't I win? You said yourself that I could call on the whole United States Army. Van Cleek grinned triumphantly. You see that? He held up a pear-shaped electric push button attached to a long cord. If I push that, it will blow a path right straight across the ways, blow it to kingdom come. And just for good measure, I'll take an axe and wreck this control station before I leave. Gaines wished wholeheartedly that he knew more about psychology. Well, he'd just have to do his best and trust to horse sense to give him the right answers. That's pretty drastic, Van, but I don't see how we can give up. No, You'd better have another think. If you force me to blow up the road, how about all the people that will be blown up along with it? Gaines thought furiously. He did not doubt that Van Cleek would carry out his threat. His very phraseology, the childish petulance of, if you force me to do this, 
betrayed the dangerous irrationality of his frame of mind. And such an explosion anywhere in the thickly populated Sacramento sector would be likely to wreck one or more apartment houses, and would be certain to kill shopkeepers on the included segment of Strip 20, as well as chance passers-by. Van was absolutely right. He dare not risk the lives of bystanders who were not aware of the issue and had not consented to the hazard, even if the road never rolled again. For that matter, he did not relish chancing major damage to the road itself, but it was the danger to innocent life which left him helpless. A tune ran through his head. Hear them hum, watch them run. Oh, our work is never done. What to do, what to do. While you ride, while you glide, we are. This wasn't getting any place. He turned back to the screen. Look, Van, you don't want to blow up the road unless you have to, I'm sure. Neither do I. Suppose I come up to your headquarters and we talk this thing over. Two reasonable men ought to be able to make a settlement? Van Cleek was suspicious. Is this some sort of a trick? How can it be? I'll come alone and unarmed, just as fast as my car can get there. How about your men? They will sit where they are until I'm back. You can put out observers to make sure of it. Van Cleek stalled for a moment, caught between the fear of a trap and the pleasure of having his erstwhile superior come to him to sue for terms. At last, he grudgingly consented. Gaines left his instructions and told Davidson what he intended to do. If I'm not back within an hour, you're on your own, Dave. Be careful, Chief. I will. He evicted the cadet driver from the reconnaissance car and ran it down the ramp into the causeway, then headed north and gave it the gun. Now he would have a chance to collect his thoughts, even at 200 miles per hour. Suppose he pulled off this trick. There would still have to be some changes made. Two lessons stood out like sore thumbs. First, the strips must be cross-connected with safety interlocks so that adjacent strips would slow down or stop if a strip's speed became dangerously different from those adjacent. No repetition of what happened on 20. But that was elementary, a mere mechanical detail. The real failure had been in men. Well, the psychological classification tests must be improved to ensure that the roads employed only conscientious, reliable men. But hell's bells, that was just exactly what the present classification tests were supposed to ensure beyond question. To the best of his knowledge, there had never been a failure from the improved Hum-Wadsworth-Burton method, not until today in the Sacramento sector. How had Van Cleek gotten one whole sector of temperament-classified men to revolt? It didn't make sense. Personnel did not behave erratically without a reason. One man might be unpredictable, but in large numbers, personnel were as dependable as machines or figures. It could be measured, examined, classified. His inner eye automatically pictured the personnel office with its rows of filing cabinets, its clerks, he got it. He got it. Van Cleek, as chief deputy, was ex officio personnel officer for the entire road. It was the only solution that covered all the facts. The personnel officer alone had the perfect opportunity to pick out all the bad apples and concentrate them in one barrel. 
Gaines was convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that there had been skullduggery, perhaps for years, with the temperament classification tests, and that Van Cleek had deliberately transferred the kind of men he needed to one sector after falsifying their records. And that taught another lesson— tighter tests for officers and no officer to be trusted with classification and assignment without close supervision and inspection. Even he, Gaines, should be watched in that respect. Qui custodiet ipsos custodes? Who will guard those self-same guardians? Latin might be obsolete, but those old Romans weren't dummies. He at last knew wherein he had failed, and he derived melancholy pleasure from the knowledge. Supervision and inspection. Check and recheck was the answer. It would be cumbersome and inefficient, but it seemed that adequate safeguards always involved some loss of efficiency. He should not have entrusted so much authority to Van Cleek without knowing more about him. He still should know more about him. He touched the emergency stop button and brought the car to a dizzying halt. Relay station. See if you can raise my office. Dolores's face looked out from the screen. You're still there. Good, he told her. I was afraid you'd gone home. I came back, Mr. Gaines. Good girl. Get me Van Cleek's personal file jacket. I want to see his classification record. She was back with it in exceptionally short order and read from it the symbols and percentages. He nodded repeatedly as the data checked his hunches. Masked, introvert, inferiority complex. It checked. Comment of the board, she read. In spite of the slight potential instability shown by maxima A and D on the consolidated profile curve, the board is convinced that this officer is nevertheless fitted for duty. He has an exceptionally fine record and is especially adept in handling men. He is, therefore, recommended for retention and promotion. That's all, Dolores. Thanks. Yes, Mr. Gaines. I'm off for a showdown. Keep your fingers crossed. But, Mr. Gaines... Back in Fresno, Dolores stared wide-eyed at an empty screen. Take me to Mr. Van Cleek. The man addressed took his gun out of Gaines's ribs, reluctantly, Gaines thought, and indicated that the chief engineer should precede him up the stairs. Gaines climbed out of the car and complied. Van Cleek had set himself up in the sector control room proper, rather than the administrative office. With him were half a dozen men, all armed. Good evening, Director Van Cleek. The little man swelled visibly at Gaines's acknowledgement of his assumed rank. We don't go in much around here for titles, he said, with ostentatious casualness. Just call me Van. Sit down, Gaines. Gaines did so. It was necessary to get those other men out. He looked at them with an expression of bored amusement. Can't you handle one unarmed man by yourself, Van? Or don't the functionalists trust each other? Van Cleek's face showed his annoyance, but Gaines's smile was undaunted. Finally, the smaller man picked up a pistol from his desk and motioned toward the door. Get out, you guys. But Van- Get out, I said. When they were alone, Van Cleek picked up the electric push-button which Gaines had seen in the visor screen and pointed his pistol at his former chief. Okay, he growled. Try any funny stuff, and off it goes. What's your proposition? Gaines's irritating smile grew broader. Van Cleek scowled. What's so damn funny, 
he said. Gaines granted him an answer. You are, Van. Honest, this is rich. You start a functionalist revolution, and the only function you can think of to perform is to blow up the road that justifies your title. Tell me, he went on, what is it you are so scared of? I am not afraid. Not afraid? You, sitting there ready to commit harakiri with that toy push button, and you tell me that you aren't afraid. If your buddies knew how near you are to throwing away what they've fought for, they'd shoot you in a second. You're afraid of them too, aren't you? Van Cleek thrust the push button away from him and stood up. I am not afraid, he shouted and came around the desk toward Gaines. Gaines sat where he was and laughed. But you are. You're afraid of me this minute. You're afraid I'll have you on the carpet for the way you do your job. You're afraid the cadets won't salute you. You're afraid they are laughing behind your back. You're afraid of using the wrong fork at dinner. You're afraid people are looking at you. And you are afraid that they won't notice you. I am not, he protested. You, you dirty, stuck-up snob. Just because you went to a high-hat school, you think you're better than anybody. He choked and became incoherent, fighting to keep back tears of rage. You and your nasty little cadets. Gaines eyed him cautiously. The weakness in the man's character was evident now. He wondered why he had not seen it before. He recalled how ungracious Van Cleek had been one time when he had offered to help him with an intricate piece of figuring. The problem now was to play on his weakness, to keep him so preoccupied that he would not remember the peril-laden push-button. He must be caused to center the venom of his twisted outlook on Gaines, to the exclusion of every other thought. But he must not goad him too carelessly, or a shot from across the room might put an end to Gaines, and to any chance of avoiding a bloody, wasteful struggle for control of the road. Gaines chuckled. Van, he said, you are a pathetic little shrimp. That was a dead giveaway. I understand you perfectly. You're a third raider, Van, and all your life you've been afraid that someone would see through you and send you back to the foot of the class. Director, phooey. If you are the best the functionalists can offer, we can afford to ignore them. They'll fold up from their own rotten inefficiency. He swung around in his chair, deliberately turning his back on Van Cleek and his gun. Van Cleek advanced on his tormentor, halted a few feet away, and shouted, You! I'll show you. I'll put a bullet in you. That's what I'll do. Gaines swung back around, got up, and walked steadily toward him. Put that pop gun down before you hurt yourself. Van Cleek retreated a step. Don't you come near me, he screamed. Don't you come near me, or I'll shoot you. See if I don't. This is it, thought Gaines, and dived. The pistol went off alongside his ear. Well, that one didn't get him. They were on the floor. Van Cleek was hard to hold for a little man. Where was the gun? There, he had it. He broke away. Van Cleek did not get up. He lay sprawled on the floor, tears streaming out of his closed eyes, blubbering like a frustrated child. Gaines looked at him with something like compassion in his eyes and hit him carefully behind the ear with the butt of the pistol. He walked over to the door and listened for a moment, then locked it cautiously. 
The cord from the push button led to the control board. He examined the hookup and disconnected it carefully. That done, he turned to the televisor at the control desk and called Fresno. Okay, Dave, he said. Let him attack now, and for the love of Pete, hurry. Then he cleared the screen, not wishing his watch officer to see how he was shaking. Back in Fresno the next morning, Gaines paced around the main control room with a fair degree of contentment in his heart. The roads were rolling. Before long, they would be up to speed again. It had been a long night. Every engineer, every available cadet, had been needed to make the inch-by-inch -inch inspection of Sacramento's sector which he had required. Then they had to cross-connect around two wrecked subsector control boards. But the roads were rolling. He could feel their rhythm up through the floor. He stopped beside a haggard, stubbly-bearded man. Why don't you go home, Dave? he asked. McPherson can carry on from here. How about yourself, Chief? You don't look like a June bride. Oh, I'll catch a nap in my office after a bit. I called my wife and told her I couldn't make it. She's coming down here to meet me. Was she sore? Not very. You know how women are. He turned back to the instrument board and watched the clicking busybodies assembling the data from six sectors. San Diego Circle, Angeles Sector, Bakersfield Sector, Fresno Sector, Stockton. Stockton? Stockton, good grief. Bleckensop. He had left a cabinet minister of Australia cooling his heels in the Stockton office all night long. He started for the door while calling over his shoulder. Dave, will you order a car for me? Make it a fast one. He was across the hall and had his head inside his private office before Davidson could acknowledge the order. Dolores. Yes, Mr. Gaines. Call my wife and tell her I had to go to Stockton. If she's already left home, just have her wait here. And Dolores. Yes, Mr. Gaines. Calm her down. She bit her lip, but her face was impassive. Yes, Mr. Gaines. That's a good girl. He was out and started down the stairway. When he reached road level, the sight of the rolling strips warmed him inside and made him feel almost cheerful. He strode briskly away toward a door marked Access Down, whistling softly to himself. He opened the door, and the rumbling, roaring rhythm from down inside seemed to pick up the tune even as it drowned out the sound of his whistling. Hi, hi, he, the rotor men are we. Check off your sectors, loud and strong. One, two, three. Anywhere you go, you are bound to know that your roadways go rolling along. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And we're going to talk about the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 1, a new audiobook from Downpour and Blackstone Audio. Uh, this is the first time this has ever been in audio. I have had a paperback copy of this since the mid-80s, I would say. And have not read everything in the collection before, which is mm -hmm. kind of weird considering I've had a copy of it all that time. But I've, fi I've physically sat down and read from the paper book, and I just said, oh, this one looks really long. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't read it. Oh, yes. Um, so there's a couple in here I'd never read before. And uh, I guess um, this was a, a good exercise. 
Um, but again, I was thinking about listening to this book this week. Ah, oh, this is why I hated to review collections. Remember, Scott, when we used to write reviews oh, yeah. for this website? I always found them hard to write oh, it's as impossible. well. It's like, you know, you yeah, you summarize every story or something. I don't know. I, did, I didn't enjoy give that. Give your quick opinion on uh, like something that's somebody polished for months and months. Mm. Terrible. So yeah. I, was, yeah. I was worried about how we're going to do this. Um, we're going to talk mostly about The Roads Must Roll because that's the audiobook we have up front. But I think it is absolutely necessary that everybody... Uh, if they don't have a, a physical paperback copy that they got in a, a used bookstore in the 1980s, then they need to get the audiobook and just dole them out to yourself uh, very gently. Because even going through it this over a week, um, I mean, I could spend at least an hour and a half talking about the microcosmic God all by myself. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, it's a really good collection, and I felt disgusting rushing it oh like, it's it totally like, disgusting mm. to try and talk about the whole thing um yeah completely. and to try and listen to the whole thing in one week like i really wanted to just like re-listen to one story and really think about it oh, and yeah. pause and so there yeah, are stories I that agree. completely skipped um and uh yeah before we move on let's mention uh the audiobook version is fantastic it is yeah. it's i great. mean every story there's various narrators um but i thought the audio was superior so good. The only caveat, and I do have one caveat, is that in a couple of the pieces there are songs, and I don't know what's happened, but people seem, to, I think narrators are afraid to use like tunes when they sing the songs in sort of a, a musical. So I'll, I'll just point to the one I'm thinking of in Fondly Fahrenheit, uh, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, it's. It may be the greatest science fiction story ever written. Um, <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> seriously, you, have you read it lately, I thought, Paul? I thought The Cold Equations was your uh, favorite. No, no, no. Cold Equations is an incredibly important story, very badly written. Uh, uh, I didn't even bother okay. to reread it in this version because I know it so well. I know it backwards mm -hmm. and forwards. Um, yeah. maybe. It's been a while since I read Fondly Fair, and I did not reread it re-listen to it for this uh so the android or the main character it's hard to hard to say who in that one sings a little ditty you know as bester has his characters often do uh in his novels there's always somebody sort of song going in uh, in the background and Tension, apprehension and dissension have begun right so you've got at least <laughs> well, thanks a lot paul <laughs> no, that's in there forever. <laughs> Again, I just, I just cut it out. <laughs> so in this at one, least no one can read my mind now. But anyway, go ahead. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible song. It's like, it's, it would be so sweet to f enjoy in the heat, like that. Um, but the, the tune is missing. So the narrators, uh, for some reason, don't use tunes. Maybe the, maybe there's some rule that you're not allowed to. Use a tune that something's set to, and there was another yeah. story exactly like that. That was, that was the the tune was missing from the song. The, you know, um, there's one in Roads Must Roll. Yeah, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. What was? Yeah, because I was just googling that before our show, and I saw there's a X minus one audio version of it, and so I just clicked it for like one second, and it opens with the tune, but it's all you know like cherry and sung with like a, a little cast, I think. Right. It sounded really cool. Mm. Yeah. It would have been fun to hear that. 
I, I want to hear that too. Yeah. Um, so other than that, that that's my only caveat. I was curious. There's one narrator uh, who's female uh, in one of the early ones that doesn't need to be fem- female, but didn't hurt the story. I, I don't know. I want that's why I wanted Oliver Wyman on here to ask how the how do they distribute this? Like, how do do people choose their own story amongst the stories within? Because Oliver Wyman is a big science fiction fan. I I don't know if he got to choose. You know, I want this one. Uh, you know, like I, mm-hmm. if, no, if it was like me, you get this and you like it. And yeah. I was a good narrator. I would be fighting for the stories that I want in here. You know, your just favorites. To, yeah. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to do Scanners Live in Vain? Or oh, the one maybe I, some maybe someone who doesn't want to do the Cranch voice. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, so, so Cranch. Um, <laughs> um, the one if I was had to oh, how, let's do it this way. If you had to narrate and just using your own human voice, not the narrator voice that you would train for, but just the one you have, and you wanted to do a good job, which story in here would you pick? Because I know which one I would pick totally. Even though it's not the best one for like the best story, it's. It's the one that I would I would be best but at. I I, I I mean I mean these these stories are so uh, all so different and all so good. Uh, I mean I could pick I could think a half a dozen of them, but I'm going to go with because it's set in my hometown. I'm going to go with coming attraction. Interesting, hmm. interesting. Because, I mean I mean I mean that that sad mournful ending of the story where he was like, oh, I, I, I wish I had taken too much radiation so I could just get get down to the ship and get back to England and out of this horrible place that New York has become. That story always tugs at my heart because after this limited nuclear war, New York is a really nasty place. I mean, that the first time I remember reading, first time I read the story years ago in that image of the mangled Empire State Building oh hulking over New York City is like, oh my God, that felt, it, it gave, just gave a chill on the my spine. And when, and when the narrator finally realizes the girl is uh, basically playing him and he pulls off the mask and she's staring at him and he just realizes just how screwed up the society has become. It's, it's a very mournful and painful story. And I think I could bring that pain because I would just think of, uh, New York in that way, and I think all that emotion would come roar th- roaring through in my uh, narration. Wow, I'm feeling it already, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How about you, Marissa? Um, I don't know because I actually hate reading aloud and narrating things. So, but if I was going to mentally <laughs> narrate aloud or something, I, I don't know. It's hard because these are all such male author stories. But probably a Martian Odyssey. Oh, why not? Ah, yeah, yeah I, I could imagine myself reading that one. Uh, that's not that's uh, there's some, there's one female author in here, Judith Merrill. She and that's a very female story too. Yeah, but I don't I don't want to pick just because of that. But it's just like so many of the ones that I th- that I think of. I'm like, that's mm, a I don't know. Would I be able to capture that voice? Right. Yeah, it's uh, it, what I like. <clears throat> I want to talk about a Martian Odyssey because I, uh, I think it's a very special story. Um, Paul, uh, you've gone. Marissa, you've gone. Scott, what's your? I think um, you know. I'm looking at the contents here. Um, how about the quest for Saint Aquin by <laughs> Anthony Boucher? Okay. 
I love that story. I thought it was great. That's one of the ones yeah. I didn't read. Me too. Yeah, I, so I it, it. It's really cool. It starts out, it's, it's very Catholic. Um, it, it has a Catholic church that's almost gone. And the Pope, uh, it opens with the Pope, and he's, you know, it's actually kind of a crime to be Christian in, in this society. And it's definitely a dystopia where, you know, a society is falling apart. Um, but it's about uh, the Pope sends, you know, and the Pope is not in the Vatican or anything like that. The Pope is just around, and he doesn't dress like the Pope. You know, in fact, he keeps his ring in his shoe, because <laughs> if he's caught, he'll be executed. So, um, but anyway, uh, it's about this guy who's sent to find uh, uh, Saint Aquin, and he doesn't know who that is. He's out there to try to find it, to try to sort of... Uh, uh, get excitement about the church and faith again, and um, I don't know if I could should reveal, uh, but it was it was really good. I want to read. I the think first you guys, I think all three of you would enjoy it. It's not like a a religious story per se. It's, 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 it contains religion in it. <laughs> it sounds familiar. I don't think uh, I've read it in years, though. I've got the first paragraph. It's, it sounds really good now that I think Scott's telling me what it's about, and also I'm reading the first paragraph. Listen to this. The Bishop of Rome, the head of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Apostolic Church, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, in short, the Pope, brushed a cockroach from the filth-encrusted wooden table, took another sip of the raw red wine, and resumed his discourse. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that sets things up. So he's sitting across nicely. a table in a pub telling uh, this the main character what he wants him to do. That sounds really good, and it's. It, I yeah. don't know why I skipped it. Probably because it had saint in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I'm well, like, one of the, one of the cool aspects of it is there's a there's a thing in there called a they call a robass, R O B A S S, which is basically a robot ass. <laughs> it's a it's a donkey that's a robot. Right. But this one talks to the main character. He's got our AI in it. There's a another donkey that's a, a jeep, uh, in the. Um, What's the story I was just listening to right before we started? Uh, Rose for Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Which, again, sure. is a, a, one of those stories I initially skipped because, I don't know, I'm like, I don't want to read about religious stuff. Um, <laughs> but actually, that's a really good story. Um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Like To me, what's so weird about this book is that none of the stories are connected, really, other than they're all um, well-written. That's the only connection between them because a lot of them are not hard science fiction at all. Like the Huddling Place, mm-hmm. I would totally want to. I love the. I love reading Clifford C. Mack because mm-hmm. I, I was going. I was listening to it. I, I was. I was thinking of that argument I had with maybe it was you and Julie uh, years ago about. Uh, how Clifford D. C. Mack never has any conflict in any of his stories. <laughs> well, that's like, right. And I said, well, you can't have a story without conflict. That's what that's what they keep right. telling me, right? And then yeah, I keep right. reading Clifford C. Mack stories, and the conflict is the guy needs to leave his house, right? Right. <laughs> that's it. That's conflict. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but the stakes are so low that it's like it's like uh, there's not much tooth toothpaste left in the tube. That's not conflict to me. You know? The stakes were so big in that one. Yeah. Like he they had the are. whole the fate of the the world if he didn't go and help his friend. That, that it's yeah. true, it's true. But it you know, and I loved what I loved about listening to it. This is the first time I've read it. 
in the audiobook is I didn't know how, how far away the end was. And so when the end happened, I'm like, what? <laughs> no. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but that but we, we, we've been caught by that by CMAC before. Like, remember the goblin reservation. Yep. He's where great. it's like, He's okay, that's that. the end. Okay. But uh I that story was so relatable as well. It's like that thing where you don't really want to do something and you're just like making excuses and then you're, Oh, oh damn, I'm too late. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I loved your tweet about that, Marissa. I thought it was great. And, and what I thought when I read it uh, again, this time for, you know, first time in a long time was, uh, it's sort of a metaphor for life that's going on right now. Like we've all retreated into these little silos and it's scary to step out of them, you know? Yeah. By the uh, way, I think you just credited me for a tweet that I didn't do. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know I which one it was. <laughs> I thought you said uh, you said something like, uh, uh, it's so, re- it, it was pretty much the sentence you just said. It's so oh, related okay. today. It's, yeah. yeah. No, tapping into someone's thoughts, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Well, I, I, I was, I guess we had some uh, conversations about what, what ones to to read if we don't have enough time and uh i definitely i i I hope i did say we should you should read huddling place you did yeah Yeah, and that's because i was reading it and i was like oh my god this is great Uh, you definitely Mm. don't want to miss this but especially i think it's it's funny how science fiction stories can resonate uh i i would say even stronger later on than they i would assume did at the time Huddling Place has got to be from the 1950s or very early 60s, right? Um, oh, no, no, Huddling Place is 44. Wow. Okay, that's even that's even more impressive uh, because to me it's uh, all about today, <laughs> right? He can talk to anybody in the world, right? Yeah. Without leaving that's his right. house, um, all his friends are elsewhere, right? And uh, somebody, it, it, it's like. Yeah, I, I would really love to go to New York, but I, I'm not willing to put up with all the uh, bullshit that happens at the airport and, and getting detained at the border. <laughs> all the horrible <laughs> things that I'd just rather stay home in my mansion, you know? Um, and now my mansion's yeah, not I much guess, of a yeah. mansion, but it sure, certainly feels like a mansion compared to uh, the the horrors of, of boring, boring, bureauc- 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 Bureaucratic, bureaucratic, uh, awfulness that that is required to do all sort, you know, expense and and going away from food you enjoy to mm-hmm. whatever you find out at the hotel in the morning. Come on, we all know this is why you know you you fight to travel, right? You have to mm-hmm. fight yourself to get into it. Paul Paul seems well, to enjoy travel more than I do because he's always planning trips. But me, I'm happy to stay home and eat the apples from the apple tree and not not wander too far from the shores I know. Instead I of being the, adult, yeah, you ahead, just, yeah, the, I'm I'm reminded of uh, that movie line. Instead of uh, being a armchair traveler, you're a traveling armchair because you just dream of being safely home in your chair. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I just looked up the Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was published in yeah 1954. And um, wasn't it in those books uh, that they had people that were on a planet that were so spread out that 
No, actually, it was kind of the opposite. The, the the people in the Dome City, when they went outside, uh, you know, their heads kind of spun. It was just yeah, really they get sure. phobia. Sure. Yeah, most, right, right. And then, scared. yeah, and then you had the planet where the people were so spread out that they never met each other, and for them to do that was really awkward. And and that kind of, you know, I can see where he read Simak. You know, for Simak did that uh, ten years before, and then that story, that story, the huddling place is part of um, City, right? Collected which I guess is a fix-up fix novel, up. right, or right. a collection? Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, didn't we do? Didn't we do City? No, we've know. never done City. Um, there is one story in City, uh, the City book, that, you know, the original short stories that is public domain. So we definitely need to get to that at some point, but we need to get a narrator for it. Um, uh, I think it's uh, has ants in the title. Oh, yeah, it's it's, it's one of the later stories in in, in that collection. Mm. I thought I thought we had done that, or maybe I just read them recently on my own because I read the. You're thinking of like the trouble with ants. That, I think that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought we had done city together. I don't think uh, so, but it's uh, been maybe, 400 maybe, maybe episodes. Maybe I talked so about when remember. we did the, gob- the goblin reservation because I remember we. Re- Consuming those stories recently, and I thought I had done it for this podcast. I apologize, but yeah, it's Huddling Place is one of those. There's um, there's the trouble with answers. There's um, a bunch of excellent stories in that sort of like quasi future history that he does, the the failed colonization of Jupiter and all, and the basically the the increasing isolation of man and the the rise of the dogs. The rise of the dogs. The rise of the dogs. Yeah, because Semek does all of his dogs. I mean, so that's it's featured in a lot of his work. So and rightly so because they're awesome. <laughs> um, I gotta, I gotta also tell you, you guys, you're so impatient to talk about this book. You wouldn't let me tell you which story I would narrate. Oh, yeah. Which story would you narrate, Jesse? I was thinking about that. Which would Jesse narrate? So, I don't know how much of a surprise this would be. There's a lot of great stories in here. I'm not a very, I'm a pretty terrible narrator, actually. However, um, what I will tell you is there's one story in here that's short enough for me, and which I've read many times with my students, and which uh, speaks to me in a way that almost. I, you know, all of these stories are great, and I love Fahrenheit, uh, fondly Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit, but it's not my life experience, you know? <laughs> it's not <What>? my... <laughs> I don't know. I just don't have a robot that I confuse with myself and uh, go around murdering people with. Um, I've been relating to that story a lot more lately since living in L.A. Oh, man. I've been like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> or scanners yeah. live in vain, you know? It's just not my... I don't know. But somehow... And it's not like my my life is a horror, but somehow the story "Born of Man and Woman" by Richard Matheson is super resonant for me. I just yeah. read it every time I read it. I'm so empathetic towards the monster that lives in the basement. Dang, I missed that one off the. Yeah, I, I didn't read that one either. So give me the premise. What what's it okay, about? Okay, well I don't know if you guys remember. I have a bunch of cartoon characters. I've been sort of making for you. Roof bear and his friends. Yeah, the roof bear people. And it, what happens is, uh, the way it worked out, w- the way I started it, was I'm just 
trying to get vocab words into kids' heads, and they don't have them because they're, you know, ESL or EAL, as they would say now, which is English as an additional language instead of a second language, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't realize that was a new thing to call it EAL. Oh, yeah. That's an, ugh, you know, they can't ever just keep something for 10 years. They have to keep making acronyms. <laughs> Anyways, the way it works is... Um, we sit down and we start reading, and if they don't know a word, uh, we make sure they learn it. And then as we keep going, they'll see that word again and blah, blah, blah. So in between the margins, right, I like to use comics uh, in between the columns. We uh, draw little pictures, point little arrows, all the sorts of, you know, multi-methods to get things in kids' heads. And one day, um, we get to the word bear, B-A-R-E, and... There, it means nothing, right? Or naked. Um, the cupboard was bare. There's nothing in the cupboard. The roof was bare. There was no chimney on it. Chimney is a word earlier in the in the book, right? And uh, so it's a bare roof. And then I draw a little picture of a bear on a roof. Right? So we got a roof bear. Um, because there's, I'm just trying to make it harder for the kids, right? By having homophones, <laughs> right? And then as we do the house, and we keep going back to that original drawing as we add new words, you know, like uh, ceiling and walls and windows and all that stuff, um, we get to the, the basement of the house. And there's a synonym for it, which is much less common, which is cellar. And so I have a character named Cellarfeller. And if you ever noticed the detail on Cellarfeller, um, it's a sort of a green monster that's chained to the wall <laughs> in the basement. Oh, um, wow. And the backstory that I explained to the students as they're looking through the pictures that I've made is that the Roof Bear family moved into this house and the monster was already there in the basement chained. And they had a terrible meeting at first but then they eventually unchained the monster and it's afraid to come out but it, it's just been abused <laughs> for its whole existence the previous oh, owners right and the thing about this story um about oh richard matheson's born a man and woman is that it's told from the monster's point of view and the monster just like in um in another story in this collection um, just like in Flowers for Algernon, um, you know, you get the journal and the kid doesn't know how to spell because it's a monster. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only a source of uh, education is a magazine uh, behind the furnace called Screen Stars, right? You know, some rag you would find at a, a grocery store in the 1940s or whatever. And, and just the description of what's going on, you have to infer so much. And yet it's all told from this very simple and um, thoughtful point of view. This this creature is being badly beaten and abused, but it has niceness inside of it that the parents are conflicted about. Right? They they want they basically want it gone, but they can't kill it. And and at the end, after yet another beating, the the creature promises. That he'll make him, it will make them pay if they try and beat him again. Huh. And it's like, wow, amazing and short, really easy to narrate because I've done it many times with students. You know, cool. I love that story. 
I do like Matheson. Yep, I'll definitely listen to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, what's so interesting is that that only a mother by Judith Merrill is very similar story, um, not in the uh, execution, but in the the setup is there's a family that has a baby that's mute a mutant, right? Um, I guess this after nuclear uh, bombs drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, Science fiction is like, radiation's a thing, let's get started, guys. And they all start writing about about the horrors of uh, mutations, mutations. Especially, yeah, we, we've seen that in a lot of Philip K. Dick stories. You got it. Uh, he's got a story called The Crawlers, which is all about, you know, mutant mutant babies and... Uh, the Golden Man. Yeah, and there's also... And many others. Uh, the uh, what, Fromunculus, or what, what's he called? Um the uh, guys with no arms and no legs. Uh, the, oh, yeah. The characters. I can't even remember. For Kamalas or something like that. He's yeah. got a special vocab word that's pretty rare. So. I. Yep. So, yep. So, radiation was definitely became a thing in stories starting in the late 40s, at least as a mutagen. I mean, before that, I mean. Radiation was just the power of the future, you know, the E.E. E. Doc Smith thing. But after the atomic bombs, radiation became a bogeyman. I should say a bogeyman because radiation is a real thing. But, I mean, you start getting science fiction movies like Them, for example. The radiation will make giant ants. And yep. so, I mean, that gives some that sort of schlock sort of giving some of science fiction a disreputable reputation. As a result, but yeah, but that only mother is not. I'm saying I was just like, well, I mean, people think, oh yes, giant ants. That's science fiction. Like that was probably the perception in the fifties. They're definitely mm-hmm. tapping into that 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 same psychic, psychic uh, wound that happens when you you nuke people and then some of them survive and they have problems because of that. Um. I, I don't I don't uh, was there of the people who went through this whole thing again was there a story in here that you think is a dud? Hmm, good question. So, yeah, I don't think so either. And and I did about seventy five percent of it, and I didn't really do it in order. No. Um. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. I was just poking around. I said I, because I didn't think I'd have time to get to them all. Yeah, I was picking book. the ones that I really wanted to. Me um, too. And then I was doing stuff that I, I didn't pick first. I was well into that. Um, but no, every story that I, that I listened to, I really liked. So, so maybe it was one of the ones you didn't listen to. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> so the, the, yeah. I mean, there is a wide variety of mostly male authors. I mean, there's one female author. I think two, one female author. Is, one, is co, co-author. Yeah, right? yeah, and, and one co-authored. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so it it is kind of the the white guys do science fictions fiction anthology. So there is there is a uniformity of ex, of a shared experience here that I guess when we get finally get to the sixties and much more prominent women and seventies much more prominent women writers that will fall away. But this this collection does have that sort of uh, sameness in assumed viewpoint i guess is the right way of putting it which which is not bad i mean i mean that's the way science fiction was there were, i mean there are plenty of science fiction women writers but they 
unfortunately have been erased by the sands of time, which has been a, a shame. I know uh, people like James James Nickel have been trying to resurrect and bring some of these authors back to light. I mean, they always were writing, but it would have been nice to have some more of them in this collection. I mean, mm-hmm. where where is um, um, uh, Brain Freeze? Yeah. Where's some of those writers, for example? Well, I would say that there was not that many women science fiction writers who were winning Hugos, which a lot of these were. But these are Nebula Award folks mostly, right? That's what this yeah. collection is made out of. If but, it had been any different, I probably would have been surprised. Like but, was just no, from the name of it. I don't think that's true, Jesse. Um, you know, the Nebulas, I think, I don't know when they started, but... Um, chosen by the members of the Science Fiction Writers yeah, of America. Yeah, chosen, chosen by them, but it, these aren't Nebula Award winners. Yeah, oh, no. yeah because Nebula didn't start to like the, like the 60s. No, yeah, no, what I'm saying is this is like the, the people who choose the Nebula Awards okay, okay. choosing yeah. this collection, right? Mm-hmm. So the, there's a whole introduction at the beginning that I – normally I love introductions to anthologies. It's mostly the reason why I buy them. Because mm-hmm. then I read the introduction and it tells me which stories to read, right? Because, of, oh, that one sounds good. Um, and this one absolutely is terrible for that. <laughs> because it just tells you how it was assembled. Um, and he makes an art, you know, he tells you the numbers of votes. And uh, I chose, you know, what his role as an editor was is basically making one decision on one thing and then, you know, I guess putting the putting them in the book and getting the thing all organized. But um, uh, here's the thing: is I don't think that there were millions of science fiction female writers who are writing short stories between the 1920s and the 1960s. I'm pretty sure there wasn't millions of them. There's a few uh, science fiction writers who are women, um, but generally they they are not um, writing short stories. They're either writing novels. Or they are co-writers, uh, as you see. I mean, there, there's uh, a number who dabbled in science fiction. But if you switch over to fantasy, or even better, weird fiction, the pages of uh, weird tales are just jam-packed with women. And, you know, one of the things I see sort of people saying on the internet about, you know, how women had to hide their identities uh, behind male pseudon- uh, male pseudonyms or yeah uh, yes I'm sure that's true that some some did but they didn't have to do it in weird tales some did uh, Gigi Pendarves right you can't tell what gender of that person is um, but a lot didn't and the number of, of fantasy authors and weird tales authors is uh, weird fiction authors is quite high um, and poets oh my god. I'm reading a collection of um, uh, science fiction poetry that has an amazing introduction. And it, it's like I, I wanted to bring it in here and start reading from it. <laughs> Even though it's real, on a different a book, podcast. right? A different topic. Um, but it's full of uh, science fiction uh, poetry and science fiction um, uh, novels. Women are well represented. I'm not sure that they are well represented in short fiction just as a percentage um and so yeah there's one and a half women in this book but um as as for a dud i think nightfalls is pretty much a dud 
Why do you think Nightfall's a dud? The reason I think Nightfall's a dud is because it's long, (laughs) and it doesn't need to be. So that's the one that, if I had to pick one, that's the one I started reading, and I I wasn't into it, but I didn't want to... I fell out of it, but I felt like... um, after I read some reviews and stuff, I was like, okay, I haven't given this the attention it needs. I need to it like needs go to back be and read. pay attention. It needs to yeah. be read. It's an interesting story, but I don't think it's Asimov's best by any means. Yeah, um, I've got to reread that one. I feel like I missed. You you want you really should any. read the story at some point, but it's not because it's interesting, but it's long, and I don't think it's amazingly it, written. But Paul it disagrees. Might, it it might be a bit long for because what. Asimov did was basically to write to an image and a final scene. And maybe he took too, maybe for readers like you, Marissa, and maybe for Jesse, he takes too long to get there by the standards of the day and probably by the standards now. But he want he wants that slow buildup. He wants, he wants you as the reader here on earth to slowly realize what this world's going to be like was really like and what's going to happen when all those suns are no longer visible that's and what so i was th- wondering because i feel like i was rushing the book a little bit because it was so many stories to read and i kind of got the yeah. impression that i had i should come back to I'm, this I, one and take it slower I, I, I mean he wants he wants that final realization like oh my god a a total solar eclipse of all the suns here would not be a wondrous thing. It would be a frightening thing. But so to get, do you understand that this would be frightening instead of a source of wonder, which would be for people like us, he has to build up the society and build up, build up what the world is like. It, and, yeah, and, and he's, and he's indulging himself in, in trying to do this. And I've seen people try to actually to figure out how you could get a solar system to actually work like this. And it turns out you really can't. Mm-hmm. The, the, the celestial mechanics don't really work to get an eclipse like this where all the suns are all behind the moon at the same time. It really, really doesn't work. But the idea that you have a sun sitting, you have, this, you have the, these people who are exposed to sunlight all their lives and suddenly are given to night once – it's a it's a wondrous image. It's like we think like, oh wow. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and you've got that. But there, the other there's another thing going on in that story too. It's that religious thing going through it, or anti-religious thing mm-hmm. um, yep. that he was making a point about. Yes, and I think that that's part of that buildup. That's what he was doing, you know. So I, I agree with Paul. I think it's a terrific story. I think it's an important story. Uh, I think that it's but not it should be read. But I don't think it's a it's a great representative of my, my, uh, who are we arguing with, right? We're arguing with a bunch of writers who are telling each other whose whose stories. Not, is not great, only that, right? not, not only that. I mean, the, the interesting thing about this anthology is it was done in ni- in the 1970. So it's the writers at that time. If you ask right. today, writers, what were the best science fiction stories from? From this period, how many of these stories would still be on there? That's how many what I'm would saying. Fallen away? I think most of them would be. I think most of them are well mm-hmm. worthy of being in in print and being in audio. Obviously, this is. I, I I feel like I'm I'm giving. I gotta give more time to the Country of the Kind by Damon Knight because I, I was like, I think I need to read this on paper. I need to slow down. But I was mm-hmm. trying to get everything in right. 
and that one is one I've neglected, and I think it sounds really interesting, but I, I went through it too quickly, I think, to fully appreciate it. So I can't I can't speak to it being, you know, a classic amongst uh, the many that are in here. Arena by Frederick Brown. I, I used to think this was a really great story, and the more I think about it, the less I think it's a great story. I think it's an interesting story. It's a cute it's the story. the one with the, the barrier and the... The blue... The, yeah, there's the, the blue sands and a monster yeah. that he has to fight. Um, yeah, the, the one that turned into the Star Trek episode, basically. Uh, even better, they turned it into um, a Toshiro uh, Mifune versus Lee Marvin movie called... Uh, uh, I was going to say Enemy Mind, but that's a slightly different book. No, that's a, di- that's a different <laughs> slightly book. Different book. Um, Toshiro Mifune is a uh, Japanese fighter pilot, and uh, uh, Lee Marvin is a is a um, American Marine, and they shoot each other down over a Pacific Atoll during World War II, and then you know fight it out. Except they become friends, and it's it's Enemy Mind. So it's it's both uh, that episode of Star Trek with the Gorn and you know, so it's an interesting story. It's it's worthy of reading. But I've read many stories that should be in here if this is the Hall of Fame and this is the first collection with a, um, where is Philip K. Dick in this book, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I this guy today, wrote amazing authors, stuff. So if you ask writers today, there would be a lot more Philip K. Dick in here. Yeah, and there. Little Black Bag by C. C. M. Cornbluth. I'm not a I'm not a hater on CM Cornbluth. I think he's interesting, but he's also cute. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that's not, I didn't bother rereading that one in here um, because I've read it before and I, I appreciate what it's doing, but it's not a, it's not a classic of the first water as, as HP Lovecraft would say. It, it doesn't it's, break your it's brain. Not, it's not the Cornbluth I'd pick either. I would go for the marching mm-hmm. morons, which is uh, it, very relevant. Uh, yeah, people, yeah. I uh, yeah I oh, actually did on, a show Jesse. I did a show on it so but I think it's I think it's a terrible story. Um, it, it's it, set it, in the same universe as, as Little Black Bag. I I think it's terrible but very interesting and and that's uh, my second dud in here, uh, the one that I always say is very important and I don't think it's very well written, is the Cold Equations, which is a very very important oh, story. Uh, it's an important story and it's a rage-inducing story. And just and, I, and if I had to make an argument, it's probably the most now influential. I don't mean as in good or bad, just as in just re, people reacting. I think it's the most influential science fiction sort of story ever written. That's because, very possible. Because I mean, so many people have written responses to it or written. In both in both in prose and in uh, other stories, trying to break down and uh, examine the assumptions in the story and fight against it, it's it's it it, it goes into the taproot of science fiction in a real yes. and dark way. It's very H.G. Wells in its 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 execution of thought. It's not very H.G. Wells in the execution of writing. H.G. Wells. Is an amazing writer. He's clean and pure, and mm-hmm. Tom Godwin is the opposite of that. He's this is a story that's badly aged. Um, and it doesn't feel sexist as much as it feels clunky, um, and you know arbitrary. And the thing is, is Tom Godwin's. Uh, I hope nobody's related to Tom Godwin around here because this is his best story, and it's terrible. Um, 
yet the ending and the whole premise of the story make it incredibly valuable and that's what's so interesting about science fiction is i was reading in that poetry volume right that character is really not very important in what we we at the time and the guy who's writing that book of uh, introduction to a bunch of science fiction poems um is saying is what we think is important science fiction unlike the you know genres that are long dead like western genre um where the or baseball there was baseball magazines and uh, railroading magazines and you know mm-hmm. true romance and true detective and dozens of genres that just you know outstripped in terms of popularity science fiction which was among the popular genres out there um those are all dead and gone and nobody cares about them and nobody reads them anymore they're all long gone and there's a reason for that because they're not full of idea and that story the cold equation is talking about something incredibly real it's saying the universe doesn't care about you if you break the laws of if you ignore the laws of physics and you think that you know rainbows and unicorns will get you to wherever you want to go if we just all pray or wish or whatever together we're all going to get this spaceship to the destination we need it to go <laughs> you are mistaken sir that's what this story does and it does it in a way that offends people uh and I think it was designed to do that in a certain sense. It was more designed by committee than it was by uh, anything else. But Tom Godwin wrote what do you a story. Mean, what do you mean designed by committee? Tom Godwin wrote a story, tried to submit, submitted it to uh, Astounding. And mm-hmm. uh, John W. Campbell said, your ending is no good. Here's what you're going to do for the ending. So John W. Campbell shaped that story into the story that it is. I see. The, the, actually the story had, that Campbell wanted. Yes, mm. but more importantly, the story that it is, because if it's the it's the story we needed, because the story as originally written, um, they do escape, and that the girl doesn't die, right? She doesn't have to take a spacewalk, and to me, that story is completely useless and unworthy of of paying any attention to. This story is the opposite, because. It's doing a completely different thing than the original story that as submitted was. And so um, the fact that it's included here, despite it being clunkily written and, um, you know, a mediocre story, except for the whole point of the story, um, that's it's fascinating to me that it can be in here with uh, pure poetry that you find in, in Bradbury or Zelazny or uh, Fondly Fahrenheit. You know, these are... These are masters of writing beautiful prose in a way that I think you don't see <laughs> in in a story like The Cold Equations. It's just bad. I mean, did you guys try and read it? I, no, I, I, I've read it a number of times over the years. Yeah, mm-hmm. the same as it, me. I, I've read it two or three times. I didn't reread it just now. It's yeah. serviceable, but it's not it's not well written. It's 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 it's, it's all yeah. It's a story that is in the end all about its idea, and everyone's reaction to it is not the prose, the style, or anything else. It is the idea and their reaction to it. Yep. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, nine billion nine billion names of God. That is a story that is not only beautifully executed, 
but also is a mind blower, right? It has it. I would say that that's uh, are also arguably one of the most influential stories, not because of it being a uh, a story that made people upset <laughs> as a, as much as no. just people read it and they feel sort of profound uh, peace or uh, oneness or beauty uh, or something, right? And yet, I mean, if I was t- today, I'm not I'm not in uh, Sifuop sadly and tragically because I don't have any enough published stories to do so. I wouldn't have picked that. I would have picked the star. I think the star is yeah. a more interesting story. They're especially both, because it has a, has a philosophical conundrum and problem to it. I mean, this is like, I agree with oh, you. we've got the names and now now without fuss, the stars are going out, which is a nice, beautiful image, whereas the star as a story has a more, as puts out a more question, was it right for God to destroy a whole civilization just so the the three wise men could see get to uh to uh baby Jesus and that's a much more interesting idea and dilemma philosophically religiously and science fictionally than this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott, mm-hmm. Scott, you, you I mean, no, I, I, I would agree with that. The star is one of my favorite stories. It's a it's you know one of the stories I read. It's very special at the very beginning of you know my science fiction reading period. But um, but I agree with you. I think it's a um, yeah, if I was going to pick between those two, I would have picked the star as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read either of them, Marissa? Um, I haven't read the star. You should. So it's yeah, it's public domain. It's, it's it's really short. It's good. Nice. I've got a copy, a PDF of a, on the PDF page. <clears throat> uh, Microcosmic God. This is a story that I I tried to get made into an audiobook many years ago. Um, this, I wanted to say Theater Surgeon had two in here, but maybe that was just in the introduction. Um, nobody gets two, right? It's one one per yeah. in the whole book, is, so yeah. it, mm-hmm. it's tough. But uh, I could see Theater Sturgeon getting more wins. Um, is the is there a Theater Sturgeon novel that everybody agrees is the, is the great Theater Sturgeon novel, or is he primarily a science fiction short story um, writer? Um, probably. Well. More Than Human is a collection of stories, so maybe Some of Your Blood, maybe? I mean, yeah, I mean, he was much more a short story person than a novel person. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Venus Plus X is probably dated. I haven't read it in years. It probably is just, it was a novel at the time. So either it would be More Than Human or Some of Your Blood, I would say. Mm. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Microcosmic God is, uh, again... Yeah. This it's, is my favorite story of his, too. It's really good. I, I mean, it's mm. it, it makes you... It's it's the Frankenstein story sort of retold as a mad scientist the the definitive mad scientist story. Um, yeah. Scott, I can't believe uh, we didn't talk about this. Um, did we we did a show? Paul, were you on it too? Uh, for um, uh, J- George R R Martin's Sand Kings. Yeah, yes. Recall that. Yeah. Right. So while I was rereading Microcosmic God for this week. I was making all these massive comparisons to to that story. Uh, yeah, I was too. Kings. Mm-hmm. And, I was too. I, 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 I do think Saint I didn't Kings. make them before that. No, <laughs> yeah. didn't make them at all before, right? Mm-hmm. I do think Saint Kings was definitely in dialogue with the story. It's yeah. funny, right? Because you didn't, you didn't. I, I didn't think about that at the time. But it, it's interesting, you know, that uh, you know there there are some differences, right? Oh, massive differences. You know, the yeah. the in Sand Kings. He was using the Sand Kings almost for entertainment purposes. Right, 
for play. Whereas uh, the guy, I can't recall his name in uh, Microcosm. Yeah, he was he wanted ideas, yeah. right? So he creates an entire race of beings and accelerates them, right? <laughs> so that they can just feed him technology. And that, that was incredible. You it know, incredible. Uh, wait, Steve wait, Jobs would have loved it. And, and that ties in that ties into Dragon's Act. Yeah. It's also oh yeah, it's, it's Edison. Egg. You're oh, right. Yes. You're right. Uh-huh. It's yeah. Edison. It's it's mm-hmm. it's and it's. I was thinking like I remembered it as being less well written, and now in reading it again, I'm like, no, this is really well written. It's 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 funnily written in that it it pushes you away in places where you would think you would want to come in close, but that's the style that he's going for, right? Sturgeon has a very um, a different feel to me than a lot of other authors. You know, Ray Bradbury has a very distinctive feel, and mm-hmm. Sturgeon does too. Um, you know, Heinlein has the same. You know, so he has his own Heinleinian feel. Some some authors I can't tell. Uh, you know, who who wrote it? Uh, you know, C Mac I can always tell. You know, but um, some of the some of the folks like First Contact. Um, again, a very important story. Um, and actually, a pretty good story too. I, I that's it's uh, Star Trek, Leinster. right? Yeah. And um, and uh, and Leinster is a is somebody who absolutely deserves to be in this. He he was one of the very first science fiction writers that were real science fiction writers after H.G. Wells. Had a massive career, and this is a very good story. Very interesting. It, it's surprising how much in reading this you're getting a view of the 20th century and how a lot of it feels futuristic still i mean the visit plates uh on on uh, the spaceship in first contact um i remember thinking about how when flat screens were first coming out, I finally got my VisiPlate. You know, now yeah. <laughs> I'm surrounded by screens and they're all flat, right? VisiPlate's um, everywhere. VisiPlate's yep. everywhere. And it's funny, they even have, if, if you noticed in that story, um, they look out the VisiPlate and there's mirrors. <laughs> 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 so they can see to the left and the right of the spaceship. <laughs> uh, oh, no, maybe it's, in, maybe it's in the cockpit. There's mirrors to look at other VisiPlates. Yeah. You know, what's funny is... Uh... Uh, the Apollo program, they actually did that. Did they? Yeah, outside the window, you had some mirrors so you could see nice. down down the side of the spacecraft. Yeah, because it was mm. uh, fu- funny. The windows were really funny in that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So um, we should we should, we're, we we are, must talk about the Rhodes Mist roll, but oh. before we do, let's touch a few. Who here read a Martian Odyssey? Not for this. Not for this podcast. I read it like a year ago. Okay. Yeah, I read it. Good, good. Scott. No, I didn't read it this time. I, I think that I've read it in the Shame past, but I couldn't you. tell you. I couldn't give you the plot. Shame upon you. Oh, Shame no. upon your house. Tell me what it's about. Okay, so it's a funny story because it's it's all told uh, past tense. This guy just been picked up off the surface of Mars. His airplane crashed or whatever. And uh, he tells a story about how he survived, and it's it's kind of a story of uh, the Martian, except uh, instead of uh, building a hut and making potatoes, he just he gets a 40-gallon tank of 
water and hikes it across the surface of Mars, heading to uh, his pickup location. Um, but along the way, that's a great description. That does kind of work, yeah. Yeah. Uh, along the way, he he uh, encounters a bird monster Wait. alien that is being eaten by a Cthulhu sort of creature coming out of the <laughs> Earth. Um, he saves the bird monster and um, names it Tweel, right? Yes. <laughs> and then they proceed tweel. along their their journey across the surface of Mars encountering various aliens that are better than almost any aliens in any other story you've ever read. Series of aliens and encounters that are great, and there's this whole thing about language being um, not, you know, simple word swapping. Um, And even though it is told in this weird backwards perspective with a very funny, old-fashioned dialogue with this United Nations of accents... um, it's a classic of science fiction that I think really laid groundwork for. I, that's why it's the first story in this collection, I think. I, is it? It's laying the groundwork for a lot of later science fiction and just doing its job for it better than most science fiction could. The entirety hmm. of uh, John W. Campbell's, you know, theory is give me an alien uh, that thinks like a man but not like a man. Yeah. Uh, as well as a man but not like a man. That is already done in a martian odyssey yeah i I, I could i could i could see how jack vance was definitely influenced by the story it's great right you can you can really feel the connections is that the first time you read it yeah it's the first time i read it and uh i feel like i it just kind of crept up on me where i was like oh my god this is really good story is right yeah it doesn't start off that way it doesn't feel like it's gonna be the greatest story ever but and it's not the greatest story ever but it's it's delightfully light uh, and fun and thought uh, thought provoking with it's like what is this okay mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they have this dialogue back and forth and it's impossible and uh, so funny and tragic and like t- so many little moments it is and yep yep and it's a great way to start it the t- second b- story Twilight. That's one I need to go back and re-listen to or maybe read in paper because I found it, uh, I was missing stuff. I don't know, I was maybe left over, hangover from A Martian Odyssey, still thinking about that. But it, uh, did anybody read that one? I can't remember right now, which means no, either did it didn't not. impact me or I didn't yeah. read it. Yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. interesting because Campbell is not known for his great writing, but this one sounded pretty interesting. It's it's a time traveler. Uh, he's get, he gets uh, picked up. He's hitchhiking, and uh, he starts telling a story to the driver. Um, and then it's just a series of, you know, futuristic adventures. Like H.G. Wells has the time traveler in the time traveler or in the time machine do. Um, but it, I, I was going through it, I guess, while I was thinking of something else. So I was very much away from the text. So I don't think I gave it as much attention as I should have, but mm-hmm. it felt like it could be a great story. Mm. But the next one I gave my full attention to because it's light and breezy and <clears throat> old-fashioned sexist. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. No, it's I, not. I, I agree. I, not, I, I agree was reading this sexist. one and I was like, this Helen is O'Loy. the one a, a woman could have written. It's a satire. It's so it is funny. A satire. It's it, it, making fun of 
all these stupid sexist ideas. Yeah, and we should, for the listeners who yeah don't have a copy of the book in front of them, it's Helen O'Loy by uh, Lester Del Rey. Helen Alloy. Alloy. This is the most beautiful metal you've ever seen. There are definitely so many lines in there that if you took them out of context, it's like, oh, that is so sexist. But the, the story itself is like it's a... beautiful, right? Yeah, it's making fun of all that. And it's like, look what happens to the, like these stupid ideas of and what a, woman, a perfect herself, woman should be. Right? Yeah, and then the, and the two guys never get to experience like true love or have children that they actually wanted. They wanted to be... They had that desire to be fathers and... Yep. It's basically like it reminds me of a story about porn addiction or something like. It does, right? It's, it feels very modern. Uh, in fact, I think it would make a really beautiful movie if you could do it right. Yeah, it, it actually, feels like it's already been done. You know, like with Robin Williams playing the robot or something, but not not Robin Williams. I I feel like this story's been very influential. It's kind not, of Stepford Wives as well. Yeah, yeah. Like it's got that. Or, like, or, 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 or Ex Machina. Or, there you oh, go. Yeah. Maybe it is Ex Machina, except mm-hmm. that's a except, horror except story. She, yeah, that's a horror story. Yeah, that's, this is like, yeah, if Helen decided yeah, to go murderous instead. and so it's. I guess it's, it's it could be twinned with Fondly Fahrenheit, now that I think about it. <laughs> I was actually going to suggest that. I was going to say, if we run out of time, we should do a podcast on, like, just the Android ones, you know, because you can see these different, like... Yeah, yeah, ha, ha, robots and science fiction, these science fiction stories, sure. Yeah, the so, dysfunctional yeah, aspects of humanity into and androids. So, so we're All going right. to talk about the Rose of Rose shortly. We talked about Microcosmic God. We talked about Nifold. Next one up is A.E. Ben Box, The Weapon Shop. Now, this is very mm. important. I, I insist that marissa read this all i did oh. you read it before this is one of my favorite stories of all time so okay. yes i gotta i gotta say why i insisted marissa read it but before i do i want to see if she knows why i insisted she read it um did you read yeah. it? i did read it yeah. i don't know why you insisted apart from no i don't know actually it's because it's it's very philip k dick um when you when I was reading it, I was like, oh my god! Now I finally understand why, because I'd never read it before. Um, I, I I heard or read somewhere, maybe I heard it on one of his interviews, um, saying how he got obsessed with A.E. Van Vaught um, in the 1940s. He's reading the the Astounding, and he he just thought A.E. Van Vaught was the greatest science fiction writer ever. And that it was it was amazing, and the weapon shop stories and the null stories, and I'm like, yeah, I've read an A.E. Van Vaught. It's not that good. What's what's up, Phil? <laughs> no. The thing is, is the I mean, uh, the one I read was um, the one that got turned into Alien. What's it? Uh, the Voyage of the Space Beagle. Um, Voyage of the Space Beagle, yeah. Which is a fix-up, which includes this story about a alien cat named coral coral <laughs> that is basically <laughs> the alien from uh alien hmm. um and it you I know it read takes that. A, it's a it's an interesting story but it's not a great story it's very pulpy i've read slam slam by van bach yeah again as well that's as another one. one where it's interesting but it's he's not the greatest writer but what i noticed in this uh, i think it's a very good reading too um the weapon shop is is the arbitrary weirdness that happens, and the and the small businessman who is our main character, 
Fair he goes enough. into this world and he says, I'm going to stop this this store. And then he goes you know, through all this process to get in. And then, oh, he just opens the door. <laughs> then he goes <laughs> in. And the weapon guys, you know, overturning his expectations, and then he exits <laughs> through an through a door, right? And he's in another world. And this is totally how you feel when you're reading a Philip K. Dick book: is that there's this small businessman who's just trying to get along with his life, and he's got all these uh, ideas about the community and how things should be run. And then things go weird, and he ends up uh, having to migrate to another planet or something. And just, I could feel, like, this is, I almost felt like, in reading this one, I felt like almost Philip K. Dick was copying A.E. Van Vaught. But what I what I think what's really happening is this is him reading and saying, oh my god, somebody gets me, Right. And and then that really helped him say, oh, I can be a science fiction writer too because this this is a good story, and people mm. like it. Um, you, you didn't get that sense in reading it that it was very PKD. I actually did get a sense of PKD while I was reading it, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. Like I I. It's not I exactly the same, but yeah. it has a lot of this arbitrary. Um, well, these are the rules now. I had a yeah. little sense of it, but definitely not as strong as you did. Oh, I felt I, I I felt it even some of the turns. What was missing is you know there was no boobs, there was no uh, joke, <laughs> no sentient nipples. No, yeah, no, no quivering. No, no, yeah, but no uh, nobody cheating on their wife. No, no yeah, the, the, the the domestic life was very calm uh, compared to. I mean, there was a little bit of stuff there, but it was it was as as fascinating to see that like. You know, I was saying Rudyard Kipling really influenced Heinlein. Well, damn, I can I can totally see why A.E. Van Vaught influenced Dick. I think I might enjoy it more if I reread it with that in mind, actually. I, I think it's worthy of doing a whole show on because it, it's it's very interesting. And I, I didn't linger over it because I, I didn't go back. I didn't look at the art for it or anything like that. But... Um, I really, I think it is a very interesting. Uh, oh, and it says there's a, a an even earlier story called the seesaw. seesaw. Yeah. Mm, very interesting. I'm gonna have to look Could into all of this. Yeah. All right. So, what stories have we not covered before we go to the biggie? Okay, let's continue on. Oh, we we haven't even talked about Mimsy where the bar grows. We, okay. we, we, mentioned, oh, yeah. we, we mentioned the authors, but we didn't actually talk about the story. This is, again, one of my favorite stories because it's just so weird. Okay, so this, this box of toys comes from the future, and these kids get irrevocably changed by them and are lost to their parents. There's a, there's a, there's a tragic sadness to that, that. Yeah, I loved how it was this kind of style of that kind of creepy, weird science fiction but set in a like suburban home with little kids mm-hmm. playing with their toys <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we, 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 yeah, they're n-dimensional toys that change their mind and, and yeah, i love they're a so little creepy. bit when i realized when the dimension of oh yeah the box had been sent back to the 19th century that the, the little girl who, who gets that is alice as an alice in wonderland like oh right. i remember having that like 
mind opening experience like oh that makes perfect sense yeah i'm totally gonna mm-hmm. re-listen to that one that was it's very I, it's very good. fun and and that i think is what you get when you read Kuttner. he's really he's he's full of ideas and and cl moore is 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 i find more even style than anything just beautiful style and image uh Kuttner is a radical viewpoint and uh and and poetic ideas it's really interesting and it I mean, is worthy of, of more attention. Um, I, I, I will point out that there is a Ray Bradbury story that is very well paired with it, that's even more science fiction-y. Um, and that I did a, I think it might be the first episode of Reading Short and Deep, or maybe it's it's not, I can't remember. It's, uh, hmm. it's called Zero Hour, and it's about the alien invasion of the Earth through children. In, hmm. Invisible aliens... Uh, start talking to children and they say you need to construct this and you, you get this and they turn it into a game and then the parents are like what's going on with the kids <laughs> <laughs> and it, oh, it is very that. similar yeah. and yeah. very parable with with uh, Mimsy where the Bora groves uh, I, I, I am conflicted whether this or vintage season would have been would mm. be better if you only got to pick one story for the two in the collection I think I'd have to pull up a coin if you said pick Mimsy or Vintage Season. Like, uh, they're both great. I don't know. <laughs> He's full of greatness, and mm-hmm. and it's very hard to know. I I haven't read as much uh, of CL Moore, um, but it's very hard to know who wrote what in the Lewis Paget. It seems that yeah. it was a combo, but I don't know. I always assume. Because a lot of them are written by Kuttner, and then you later find out, no, it was a collaboration. It says Kuttner. In this case, it's Lewis Paget, which is their co-author, authorship. But I, I, they lived in the same house, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, you take over the typewriter, or is it like, no, we're going to change this? And like, who knows? What, they're doing it like a business, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. yeah, they're just trying to make a living together. Uh, for mm-hmm. Scanners Live in Vain, I refer everybody to uh, our Scanners Live in Vain show. Um, because, again, I didn't listen to it in this version, but it's great. Great story. Fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Cordwainer Smith. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mars okay. is Heaven. Yeah, one of the yeah one of the Martian Chronicle stories. Yeah. Um, is it the best Martian Chronicle story? I don't think so. No. Oh no, no, no. That no. The uh, why is it? Why is this the one that people like? Or chose for this. I, it's a good story. I don't know. I don't like. I, I, I think there are much better Martian Chronicle stories. There will come soft wet rains. Uh, yep. The Millionaire Picnic. I'd pick yep. either of those over this one. Yep, I, I would agree. And, or Usher even, I like the one with the Usher hot dog. Two is my clear favorite. That well, one? but I can't remember what year it was written. Usher uh, Two. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Usher Two. Love which one's story. Usher Two? It Usher is Two nice. is is Poe recreated on Mars. Oh, okay. Like, and there's also the one with the where he talks to the ghosts of the Martian. That, that I mean, yeah, this is this is not the strongest Martian Chronicles. No, it's opinion. it's strange that it would be the pick. And again, um, Little Black Bag is an interesting story, uh, but I w- there are many CM Cornblue stories. He he was a powerhouse of a writer, and every time I pick up one of his, it's either very snarky or it's just amazing. And even when it's snarky, it's it's valuable and interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, yep. Surface tension. Who, oh, James Blish. Who read this before? 
Not this time. I think I've read it before, though. But I, 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 I definitely have read it before. Too, but I don't. I didn't this time. This is the first time I've read it ever. Um, it was one of those ones that I avoided because it was long. <laughs> uh, and it's part of his Pantropic series, right? Which is, um, he says, we're going to adapt humans to their environments rather than the other way around. I thought I thought it was pretty interesting. There's a whole Joseph Smith and the Golden Plates uh, thing going on. Really? It, yeah, it's pretty yeah, interesting. I don't recall that, but yeah, yeah no, 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 I need humans, to read it again. <laughs> the humans come to this planet, and then they're like, okay, we, we can't live here, but we're going to use our gametes, which I, I, I guess they all start masturbating or something, <laughs> because then they go modify them, right? Um, and then they, we're going to put our personalities into them, and, and they won't remember us. But because they're going to be tiny, but we'll build a uh, some golden plates for them. It, it doesn't say gold, but it's stuff that's you know mm-hmm. like gold because it has to be uh, un un uh, tarnishable and you know uh, not not going to have stuff growing on it, right? So then they make uh, these tiny little plates for them because they're only a few microns in dimension or whatever. And I mm-hmm. and then I was realizing uh, while I was reading the story that this is actually <laughs> this is a um, science fiction story about uh, sea monkeys. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, remember those ads for sea monkeys with the little, little pink people with crowns? And yeah, like a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're you know they're just tiny tiny little creatures that you can barely <laughs> see. That's exactly what this is about, and they have to develop rocket technology to escape their their uh, home, and it's it's a whole funny, cute little thing. Um, I I don't know if Blish had a lot of shorter stuff, but this is pretty good. Yeah, it it definitely inspired, like say Stephen Baxter's Flux, for example. Okay. Oh, which is the story about tiny humans living on a neutron star. Mm. Because well, they've been genetically engineered to live on there, yeah. That fits. Mm. So it's definitely in dialogue with that. There's also a forthcoming novella from Adrian Tchaikovsky called The Expert Systems Brother, where humans are engineered to live on a planet that they can't otherwise live on. So it's de- it's, def- it's definitely something that's inspired a lot of science fiction story- writers and stories. Adapting uh. to a planet rather than making the planet adapt to you. We've got uh, Jerome Bixby's It's a Good Life. I did not read it in this. I've read it before. Um, and, 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 yeah, and if you've seen the Twilight Zone episode, you know the story. Yeah. Um, it's been done <laughs> twice, I think. Um, it's also public domain, so it's on the PDF page. Um, but it's 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 well worthy of reading. Um, Jerome Bixby's not somebody who is super famous outside of this story, I don't think. Yeah, this is the this is the Jerome Bixby, the Jerome Bixby story. The most famous one, yeah, for sure. I, I think there might be a couple others that are good. Um, I didn't give uh, a listen to Flowers for Algernon because I only have so much emotion in me before I <laughs> will turn into a puddle <laughs> on the floor. But mm-hmm. uh, did anybody hear this version? Not this version, no. Okay. Not this yeah, time. Yeah, I, I recently reread it, so I didn't read it again, but... I do think that this version is better than the novel I, version. I was, was going to ask you that, Scott. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I do. They, they added in the novel version. He added, um, you know, just a little bit. Uh, it was like a relationship between him and um, Kinnan, yeah. And well, yeah, that relationship didn't exist in the shorter one. And no. then there's just other minor differences. But um, wait, but the, so this the, is the 
This no, is the shorter version. Yeah, yeah shorter this is the shorter version. version. And then he expanded it into a novel. You know, oh. so everything that's in the novelette is he actually rewrote it. So it's it's not like you have the novelette and then some more. It's like a, a rewriting of it all. I didn't realize it was two yeah. versions. Interesting. I think I think this is marginally tighter and better. So mm-hmm. I think this is the better version. I think but he everyone, everyone knows the novel. Both yeah, or something. Yeah, everyone probably. knows the novel, but not so many people know the story anymore. But it is a powerful, powerful story. But oh, it's I been like, adapted like to film story. many times as well, right? It's 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 totally an emotional train wreck, it, and and so many stories are inf- influenced by it, including uh, Ted Chiang's Understand, yeah, right, which is the same sort of story except uh, by Ted Chiang, so it's different, right? Right. What were you going to say, Paul? Uh, Scott, uh, I, I was I was going to mention uh, an author you don't like, Nancy Cress. It's not that I don't like her. I think she wrote an evil book. Well, yeah, but Bakers in Spain is definitely in dialogue with Flowers of Algernon. Really? How so? Um, yeah, um, because you're, you're, you're surgically changing people and having very, very unintended consequences. I, I, I mean, they, they don't revert and go back to uh, their former state, but, but that's the same sort of uh, exploring the consequences of of superhuman of giving superhuman abilities to flawed ordinary people. Well, this and, uh, the, I think Flowers for Algernon comes from a, a nice place, right? Where it's trying to help people with developmental yes. disabilities um, have more normal lives in that they aren't being mocked by the people at the bakery, right? Whereas the other story is about um, uh, if you just become a libertarian, uh, you don't have to be a nice person to anybody ever again, and we're all superhumans, <laughs> and they can all live in concentration camps forever and ever. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it, 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 it's like the Ayn Rand version of the story, yes. <laughs> yes, I see what you're saying now. I see the connection. Now you see the connection, thanks. I do, yes. Uh, I, I Again, I, I wish I'd get more attention to the country of the kind, because uh, I think that that... It may be a story that needs its own show. What was? Can you remind me what the premise yeah, of that one? Yeah. So was? this is a, a guy. So I think this is a, a story in dialogue with uh, a story by H. G. Wells called um, uh, "The Country of the Blind." The Country of the Blind is a story about a guy who goes into South America, falls down a into a valley um, that he can't climb out of. Um, is badly injured, but at the bottom of the valley is a set of people who have been cut off from civilization and the rest of the world for a couple of hundred years and several generations, and they are all congenitally blind. Um, and so he thinks he can be the king, as in the old line, you know, the land of the... Oh, blind, this the is the creepy one with the, the sunken houses? The, uh, there's... Is there like... I don't remember that, but they they believe that there's no such thing as vision, and he says no, I can see you, and and they ev- eventually cure him of his his insanity that's caused by these glo- these hot globes in the front of his face by mm. having them surgically removed, and then that seems to calm him down, right? So he had these weird growths in the front of his face that are we he called eyes. Um, so it's a it's a horror story about a man who is evil and trying to take over a community of 
the disabled and ends up uh, not being able to uh, escape. Wow. So it's very inter- very interesting, powerful Wells story. This story. What's the name of that one? It's called The Country of the Blind. Country, country of the Kind. And this is The Country of the Kind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the original Wells is, is, is from late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, this one is set in a future world in which violence and crime have been almost entirely eradicated. The main character is a man who is capable of antisocial behavior and considers himself the king of the world. This is a creepy story. Yes, it is. <laughs> and um, like another one that could have been in this collection, if we're, we're if this is the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, there's another by Bester that could totally fit in here, which is uh, very similar to this one, which is um, the roller coaster, where you know you've got or like Passengers by Robert Silverberg, uh, you've got. Uh, people occupying other people and using them as entertainment tools you know so kind of the way we use uh, our avatars in computer games to enjoy ourselves right uh-huh. and then we put these characters through or in dungeons and dragons right well you just put them through hell for your own amusement um and that this is like that except this guy is putting the world through hell for his own amusement yeah and uh if once um once the people in your VR worlds, Marissa, uh, start having enough AI that they can really feel real, um, <laughs> yeah. maybe they won't like you when you visit them. I don't think they'll like me. <laughs> no, because you're shooting them all day long and, and they get reconstituted and get the pain yeah. again. Because right? the AI <laughs> needs the, the pain stimuli or pain syndrome. the pleasure playing the pain syndrome is not available in this unit yeah um um, so yeah uh this is one that i think needs more attention maybe Mm -hmm. we would need to do a show on the country of the blind first uh, yeah give it the full attention it needs and maybe the country of the blind and country of the kind together yeah all right cool let's get to the roads must roll Wait, Rolling we, 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 we didn't even mention what a Rosemary Classic Ecclesiastes oh. is about. Okay, go for it. So, Rose, yeah, this is this is the lasting story about about a linguist who goes to Mars and winds up fulfilling prophecy in a tragic, tragic and poetic sort of way. He 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 uh he gets seduced. There's going to be a baby. He learns the language, but he in the end, while he's helped possibly save Mars, he himself is going to be going back to Earth, so there's that really bittersweet sort of ending. I remember that the image of him watching watching Mars get smaller and smaller as he uh, watch, as the rocket ship goes away. It's a really, it's a really touching story for me, and again, I, I think probably Scott liked this because of the, the strong religious themes and elements and exploring religion, prophecy, and and, well, uh, I, I did enjoy it. I, I like Zelazny, uh, period. You know, uh, I really like almost everything of his that I've read. Um, you know, whether religious or not, I really love the Chronicles of Amber. <laughs> and I'm not even a, a much of a fantasy reader, um, but I love those books. But this one reminded me a little bit of, um, oh, now the name escapes me. It's a novel, one of his most famous books. Lords of Light. Lord of yeah, Light. Lords of Light, that's it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this which is, is kind, kind of yeah. a Hindu uh, thing going on in that one. 
Um, yeah, which is written a few years later. So yeah, so this is almost yeah. like I think the seeds for that yeah. novel, which yeah. a lot of people say is his best novel. But I'm I'm an Amber fan myself. But you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Paul, you know what? Yeah. You, you left out the best story. part. And the best What's part is when he uses his kung fu to kick the. Oh yeah. The, the, oh, the, uh, I, I, I can mention <laughs> seven foot tall alien stuff. in the face, right? It's funny stuff. And when it's, I was listening well to it written. again this time, I love um, he's always got smoking in his uh, stories. Yep. Yeah. You know, that, that really, I, really I used to smoke a long time ago. I bet I quit a long, long time ago. But it's funny when you read his stories, there's always somebody, you know, and he, he's always writing about how good that is. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. feels terrific. Feels terrific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy died of it. So, yeah. 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 So now in we fact, can actually. Yeah, the first line of dialogue in in a rose for Ecclesiastes. You'll like this, Scott. Mister G piped Morton. Piped. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> Funny. All right, we let's talk about the roads of Mister Roll. This is the story that we have up front. So, um, why was this one chosen of all Heinlein short stories? Why was Roads Must Roll? chosen why was it jesse i don't know i'm it's not it's not atypical it's sort of a representative story of what he does right I guess so that's it yeah. so you know do you remember i don't know if you guys have read gentlemen be seated yes. i was um, exactly thinking that 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 could have been in here instead of this it could have been it would have been much shorter but it didn't have all the aspects right so i agree so highland you have you know uh, the similarities between this and Gentlemen Be Seated are, you know, you have a main character who, or a character who knows things that is taking someone who doesn't know things around and showing them all the cool things, mm-hmm. right? So look at this. Look at these big motors. Isn't this amazing? Mm-hmm. This is this is great, you know, giving them a tour. But then what this story has, a Gentlemen Be Seated as a really short story doesn't have is this um, sort of social stuff that uh, Heinlein talks about all the time. Mm -hmm. So here you've got this, um, you know, rebellion of labor um, against against the man, right? Yeah. And he he even outlines uh, what what he called functionalism in here, right? Which is sort of a, you know, depending on how powerful a position you hold is the position you... You know, or how important? How how was it put? How important the position is to economics, basically, is your should be your status in the government, kind of a thing. It's very interesting because this is this is a real phenomenon, right? Um, yeah. And what's funny is it, he even cites in this story a paper from 1930, and the story is not published in 1930, right? It's published mm-hmm. in 1940. So I'm thinking that it's probably a real paper. Um, but on the other hand, uh, this is set far in the future, and it also maps a certain kind of philosophy that is in in place and functioning but, in the United it's, States. But it's, but it's not that far in the future. Uh, it's far in the future for for 1940. It's not far uh, in the future it, for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, we're not given an actual date. We know it must be after 1960 because. Because we have, and uh, well, actually, actually, we have some clues in the story. So we know that uh, we've established they established colleges slash universities to handle these people. But then there were people of an early generation that came up through the army in the forties. 
our main our main character is one of those. We had a strike back in '60, so mm-hmm. we have we have development of the Douglas Martin screens. So this is, and and if you look at other Heinlein stories, you probably could put this probably in the mid '60s. I would say, Be- I mean, because because we haven't gone to the moon yet. And there actually are a mention of the roads in The Man Who Sold the Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these roads get mentioned a couple times. This is the one that actually features them. And in that story, Dee Dee Harriman says, oh, yeah, the roads are starting to die. They're not going to be worthwhile in, in, in a, a few decades. So yeah. I would put the story sometime in the 60s, which is 25 or so years in the future of this of when it was written, but it's not in the far future. Well, and it was, it was very interesting. Even at that time, uh, Heinlein and I assume other people I think saw, you know, cars are not a really great idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, cause they, they really aren't. I mean, we're hit, we've hit a place now where I don't know how we're going to recover from it, you know, but there, there's just no more room for more of that. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> you know? he, yeah. He saw 60, 68 years ago, the rise of suburbia because of transportation, the depletion of intercourse cities because he t- because he mentions that St. Louis and Chicago lost population as they kind of made these suicides. He so he saw urban sprawl, he saw suburbia, and he saw as you as you said, Scott, that cars in the end are going to kill us. And what what the American society in this world comes up with is a very radical different solution to that problem than we have. We are just like muddling along and just at adding more and more cars, whereas they decide to go, no, we'll, we'll build moving moving roads and work with it that way. And mm. what are the social implications of that? How would that work? Well, how would society change? This is why this story was chosen, Jesse, because it it, it goes for big ideas. Well, what, what if we handled society this way rather than by cars? What would society look like? And what sort of conflicts would there be? Well, there would be conflicts by the people who actually build and maintain these things because it's a labor-intensive sort of technology. Yeah, I, 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 I do see it. It's just, a, it's just a funny, it's a funny story to think about how he's completely wrong, right? <laughs> this is not what's going to happen. Well, um, well, the reason why this happened, he is works re- it out in such detail that. It, it was like this is yeah, really interesting science fiction. Yeah, I don't, I don't suspect that he was trying to predict the future here. I understand, I understand, okay. I understand that. But um, like rockets to the moon, right? This mm-hmm. is uh, something we c- should all expect, right? We should all expect rockets to the moon because we've been expecting it. As basically, that's where science fiction starts: is some guy in, you know, Voltaire, or whoever it is, starts. Even the ancient Greeks have stories of people, you know, traveling to the moon and stuff, right? So this is this is there are there are goals, right? What what's going on in 1940 is he's saying, yeah, look at all this, the all the weird action that's happening in terms of cars, and then he has this idea. Well, what about slidewalks, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually do have them. They're at airports now, right? That's the only place where you have them in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe some mall somewhere, but there's there's like a conveyor belt that just pulls people along, and and that idea at where he's worked it out so that there's all these layers, he's building castles in the sky 
in the grand tradition of, of fantasy, but out of science fiction, right? Mm. And so yep. what he does is he says, I have this vision. I have this vision of the world of the United States remade. And then he works backwards from it, saying, how does all this structure work? And what social impact will it have if nobody has a car and everything is so far away from each other when the union that runs this machine, that's it's militarized, right? It's a militarized union, uh, mm-hmm. runs this machine, refuses to work. And this is a, a, a fascinating exploration of science fiction that has that proves the point you're making scott that he isn't trying to predict the future he's doing what science fiction does which is say here's an idea what would it mean and then he explores it so all the characters like i don't care about any of the characters in the story i can't even name them right there's a there's a reporter oh no no there's a guy from australia who He's the guy who stands around saying, yeah, I, I don't know anything about this. Let's go for lunch. <laughs> yeah. right? And then there's the, the the old man guy who runs things. Who's he's like, Yeah. It's like those guys, you know, I just watched, finished watching Airplane. You remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Uh, I love that movie. So funny. <laughs> I mean, it's making fun of uh, a whole bunch of airport movies from the 70s, right? Airplane is like 1980, I think. And. There's an airplane, Airport 75, and, and then there's a sequel, Airport 76, and it's always some airplane, you know, is coming down, and the pilot is sick, or their wings missing, or whatever, and they, and they have all this drama that's going on. It's very dramatic. Well, that actually is what, that's actually what this is about, except it's with a, a artificial technology that isn't actually in place, and he builds up this giant castle in the air of science fiction. And it all comes to nothing, except mm. it's amazing. And that's why I think it's so weird that it's in this story, because it really exemplifies this weird strain of science fiction that isn't, um, you know, isn't teaching us a lesson per se. It's just, look at what people can do. Well, imagine. Uh, and it's so weird, because it's all about unions, right? Well, it's all, you, I think he's teaching us a couple of things here. Like, one yeah. is... Um, you know, grand ideas to solve uh, upcoming problems, right? Yep. I, I really like that. And then, um, you know, you always have that law of unintended consequences, but also, mm-hmm. you know, who who are you putting your life in the hands of? You know what I mean? In mm-hmm. society, and I'm talking about as a society, it's like, yep. yeah. you know, who, who yep. is in a position to throw a wrench in the gear? At the... When I was reading this, I was just thinking it's so different physically, but I could imagine this being um, the guys who are looking after all the data and the internet cables and stuff. Sure. So I could see it happening with our huge dependence yeah, on that. Me, if someone took shut, that stuff hostage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let me shut the internet off for eight hours. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. worldwide panic probably. But but yeah. Well, that's yeah, what happened, that's right? Remember when Wikipedia shut down because of the United States... Um, defunding or threatening it was uh net neutrality right yeah uh, it was a pipa or sepa or pipa bill it was like hey let's screw everything over while nobody's looking and then all these websites start going black and when wikipedia went black suddenly you know like this the screen so, is black that's them shutting things down saying we're not having it right and even though wikipedia doesn't run the internet it's so important Right, mm-hmm. that so many people are affected, saying, 
what is our government doing? Why is my website not working? Right? <laughs> that is really powerful stuff. And it also made me think of, you know, remember in the 80s when Ronald Reagan uh, broke the uh, air traffic controllers union. Mm-hmm. I was playing with my Barbie dolls about then. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't paying attention, but um, I, I'm not saying remember when because I was, a, yeah. you know, playing with my GI Joes, except they were probably Star Wars figures because I didn't have GI Joes or Lego or whatever. And I'm, I'm not paying attention, but everybody's like, oh shit, oh, that means we're not going to have air, aircraft moving back and forth, and that sort of it could hurt the economy. Well, somehow they muddled through, right? Mm-hmm. They the airplanes didn't crash into each other, um, but it'd be very hard to shut down the highways in the same way that you shut down uh, a machine like that's invented here. And so it feels kind of artificial, but it also feels like it, if you accept the basic premise, this is fascinating. And and the functionalism that he he creates, which I, I'll just read the Wikipedia entry for it here. Uh, the functional social movement he calls functionalism, which is unrelated to the real-life sociological theory of the same name, advances the idea that one's status and level of material reward in a society must and should depend on the functions one performs in that society. So we actually do have this in the United States today. It's called meritocracy, right? Mm-hmm. That's what people claim. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> That's what people claim. I don't know claim. if I agree with that. Uh, oh, see, if we had Scott, a meritocracy, Scott, the uh, reason, a little bit The reason that those uh, those guys running those hedge funds need those bonuses is no, because it, they're it so much because, smarter and better yeah. at doing their job than you could ever be. No, but that's not really true. Of course it's not true. Okay, good. Of course it's not true, but that's what they claim, right? This whole, the, the elite that runs the country and says, we know better. We need super delegates. We need to have things run this way so that bad, yeah, stupid but how is that idiots don't ruin the country like I, we're I, not I doing. I agree with everything that you're saying, but how does that, where is merit in there? Ex- uh, well, so, uh, deplorables, right? Who are the deplorables? Mm-hmm. It's a big bag of uh, binders full of <laughs> binders full assholes, of right? Okay. Uh, it's the neo-Nazis and this people. It's basically anyone who who didn't go to an Ivy League university and doesn't have a, a job at a, a, a East Coast um, military contractor or you know some sort of horrible job where they think they run things. And the thing is. is you still actually have a democracy in the United States. We know this because people refuse to vote and some people do vote and people get results they don't like. But if you had what they have here, which is, you know, the best man for the job, um, it's almost like he's setting up this whole story to test out his, his philosophical theory just like he sort of well, sets up. His well, whole, yeah. Hold on just a second. So, yeah. but there is functionalism is what the saboteurs want in the That's story, right. right? That's right. It's not. It's not in place in any way. Well, the, the story. It, it, so the 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 whole philosophy behind um, behind the story is that there's a whole crew of people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, 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 I think this story could compare very interestingly philosophically to what he's doing in Starship Troopers, 
What's yeah, the and also uh, the moon is a harsh mistress. Yeah, that, yeah. that again mm-hmm. is uh, it's a slightly different, but it is a whole philosophical system. But in in Starship Troopers, the only people who get the vote are the people who actually have to fight the wars, right? They have to volunteer for Sur- service guarantees citizenship. That's right. What the movie? Uh, but he he's taking that idea seriously in in the book, and he's saying there's a reason for it. Um, you want to go fight those wars, you chicken hawks? Fine, sign up. Once you've done that, then you can vote for the next war. Um, he's dealing with a real problem, right? That there's a class of people who think it's it's other people's job to go and fight their war for them, to make their money for them. And that's what he's exploring in that idea of citizenship is guaranteed by service. Mm-hmm. Um, here... He's saying, look, there are actual people who are really good at their jobs who are not put in that position because they know somebody, right? So right. if you don't know how to run the servos or whatever they're called in, in the roads must roll under, under in the tunnels underneath, right? If you don't know how to run those things, then you shouldn't be in charge of supervising guys who do right. that. So, so that would be a meritocracy. It, yes, exactly. Okay. Now the thing is, is what makes somebody have merit? They, in today's society, is not necessarily an actual meritocracy, right? So okay, that's that th- was my point. Thinking exactly. about how, like, why is Heinlein even talking about this? I'm thinking about how he is on a ship. Oh, you know, remember he was in the military, he was in the navy, and the thing is, is in in peacetime, you get actually a lot of shitty officers, a lot of shitty. Uh, action in the military because it doesn't really cost anything if your guys are shitty right but during wartime if your guys are incompetent it it can kill you so a good example i was reading uh with a student of mine uh the scientology wikipedia entry the other day and talking about how uh lafayette uh ronald um what's his last name hubbard hubbard yeah, he he was one of those officers who you absolutely do not want to have running a ship during wartime. Yeah, he was a disaster. He was a oh, disaster. He, he he was removed from command twice during the war for incompetence, right? Yeah. And these are the kinds of people who can who can do perfectly good stuff as long as they don't actually have any responsibility or any power. But if yeah. they actually have power and influence, then they can kill people, and that's really bad. So. We, you know, if you're on a ship and uh, we've all been in situations where there's a person who's absolutely competent to do their job and there's another person who's there who doesn't have those skills and yet they're treated equally or one is even higher than the other one. And we know that this is not a tenable situation in an emergency, but we, we were satisfied with it at, at the time. This story is saying, uh, I mean, a lot of the talk was going on in it, I think, is about how these guys deserve more power because they have more skill. And the mm-hmm. guy who... It's funny, because the guy who's trying to put down this rebellion, sort of internal rebellion, um, is sympathetic to the idea, but he's he's also following the orders of the society he's in. You see what I mean? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's exploring I, it. He's exploring yeah, this I, whole I, thing. I saw him as a as a competent person. He seemed to yeah, know he, plenty. He was about all this competent, system. right? Yeah, he was like, 
extreme competent, like yep. one of the most competent. <laughs> yeah, that's the highlining thing, right? Yeah, yeah, the highline competent man. He, Just totally calm, it. can handle everything. <laughs> and, and second, and second in command. I mean, he breaks him down psychologically in that final confrontation because yeah, because he's mm. a competent man and he knows that his second in command, who's trying to organize his rebellion, is flawed. And if he can work that flaw, he can stop him. I mean, it's a close run thing. If the guy hits him with the bullet, he's dead. But so there is, it's not, it's not clear that they had, that this, he was going to get out of this alive, but he was willing to do that for the good of society because he's inculcated in himself, the virtues of that society and what he's been trying to inculcate in others. And in this whole program, which failed because his second in command had been stacking the deck against him. There's a there's a fascinating um, fact. I, I, you guys probably don't know this. Is when I learned this, I was like, that is really interesting. So uh, y'all heard of the RCMP, right? The Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're the guys in the red serge uniform and the big uh, hat, right? And don't ride horses most of the time. They're driving around in cars. And none um, of them are named Dudley. Uh, very few of them are named Dudley. There's a few named Preston and a number named Nelson, but <laughs> very few named Dudley as far as I know. However, um, they are a paramilitary force in the sense that you sign up for the RCMP. You serve a term in the same way that military people do. You can't just quit, right? And you don't have a right to a union in the same way that soldiers in the army don't have a right to a union. Police officers, it's very strange. You know, some of them have unions, some of them don't. Some of them have affiliations that are like unions. But when the RCMP, you know, are protesting something, you know, like better wages or, you know, uh, supplements for housing because they can't live in the place that they need to live, right? The way they have to protest is very mild. They put on jeans. So the top of their (laughs) uniform is normal and the bottom of the uniform is jeans. Um this is because it's illegal for them to practice certain things. It, it, it's in the the they can be like imprisoned for disobeying certain things, and so any consequence of them being this absolutely necessary uh, force across most of Western Canada, you know, the city I'm in has. Only one police force, and that's the RCMP. If they went on strike, wait, 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 there wait, would be wait, a problem. Wait, wait, you mean Vancouver doesn't have a police force? Coquitlam doesn't have its own police force. Vancouver does. So each city contracts either its neighboring city to mine, Port Moody, has its own police force, which is Port Moody Police Department. And the one I'm in, Coquitlam, just contracts from the RCMP. Most communities in British Columbia have RCMP only. Right. But if you're a big city or you want to just try and save money or you're, you know, want more political control over them, you can make your own police force. Right. It's, it's an option. But they don't have like two. The RCMP could operate in Port Moody, even though it's police. Right. Uh, they have their own police force, but they don't because they're busy elsewhere. Right. So the, the important part, though, is that. They can't be allowed to have a union because if they do, they can take over, right? They can demand things, and, and that would be bad. And what is what are the characters in the story and the union meeting fighting for? 
One of them is the right to quit. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. To take another job. To say, look, we've had enough. And they're not allowed to do that. And that's fascinating. He set up this whole system, this castle in the air of science fiction idea, and then said, well, what are the consequences of that? And then he set a plot around it. But the plot comes after the idea. And that is so cool. That's why this is an interesting story, even though it's ridiculous that we're going to have highways that move themselves. Come on. At 100 miles across an hour? The United States? I don't think so. <laughs> Well, well, that would be so awesome, and, and to have a to have a restaurant right on there that you can visit. That's right, fantastic. It's a roadside After, diner you walk up to while your road is flying along at 100 miles an hour. But but the, but the, but but Jesse, think about this. So if so if petroleum is a restricted commodity, and you have cheap solar power, how do you efficiently move people distances further than they can walk? Electric buses? Trains probably is what I'm thinking would happen now. And I think that the analogy to trains is actually very strong because the the way people used to get around before the highway system was via train, right? Remember earlier in the podcast, I was talking how there was this whole genre of magazine called the railroad magazines. And there were story fiction stories on trains about trains about driving trains about being robbed on the train about you know every kind of thing you can imagine it's just a whole genre about railroading so railroad so, stories it's so yeah, weird so, so i wonder why heinlein didn't think of the rise of rail re-rise of railroads in his given his given his scenario i mean on, on the other hand well here's, here's the other here's the other piece of his future history that Solar power is cheap. You can't efficiently run a railroad with solar power screens, but you can you can run a moving sidewalk with solar power screens. I think he just got obsessed with the idea. He says, yeah. imagine a conveyor belt for uh, people, that, and then people. just wrote it all out and thought it all through. Yeah, yeah, I I I I, th- I think so. I'm trying I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying. I'm trying to dig down because I mean, he he explicates in the story to the poor Australian who, who is our, who is our I don't know character. Please tell me everything. How this all came about, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to, I, I ever ever since I first read the story years ago, I've tried to rationalize, try to figure out what under what circumstances aren't there better choices? Like you said, trains. Why why wouldn't we go back to trains if we can't have petroleum? As it as it and 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 basically long distance automobiles. Why would we ever pick this way? I think it's a combination of very very cheap solar power and the lack of oil. Meaning, okay, so then then we need a way to basically power people. That's that both moving and stationary, and so that's how you wind up with the weird idea of these moving sidewalks. I don't think they're practical because, I mean, look what happens when. One breaks down, and how much disaster that causes. He kind of proves that they're impractical in this story, doesn't he? Yeah, he, did, yeah. he does. Mm-hmm. He explored like, the idea and said, "Well, that doesn't work." <laughs> I, I imagine getting on a, a hundred miles an hour. Some of these things are going, and, and he doesn't seem to consider. Yeah, you know, like I mean, he's got all these engineers. Just think how many people you need to make sure these things don't break down. I, 
It's essentially a story about a bus company, right? Uh, 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 The bus service. And the the drama is the buses are shut down. uh, But he makes it a bigger stakes by saying nobody has cars anymore. Right, so he maximizes it in certain places, and and it's just like a, you know, general strikes used to happen where the whole town is shut down because the bus drivers are a union, they strike, and the milkmen are a union and they strike, and nothing gets moving. Right, all the stores are closed, nobody can get to work, and what does that mean? Well, you have to have a strong man at the top who is competent and can reason things out with these bullheaded. You know, a high, straw man. A Heinlein, you need a Heinlein hero. Yeah. So someone that will make it safe. Yeah, someone with large hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you know what I see coming, um, or what I think is possible moving forward from here is, um, you know, where you have a city like, let's say, New York City, that stops allowing any cars in there. But what they do is, you know, uh, well, Google's working on it, and Tesla's working on, you know, the the self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Well, the self-driving cars can be super efficient if they can communicate with all the other cars, mm-hmm. right? So I could see like Google uh, has a contract with New York City to supply them with vehicles, right? And so the only vehicles inside like the city limits would be Google cars, let's say. And Google can run a really efficient traffic pattern if they control all the vehicles, right? So what would happen is you would go outside and just get in a car or you could call one to yourself or whatever. And then, um, do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So you would, as a, as a citizen of New York city, you would, uh, have a license or whatever that you might pay for. And that gives you, Uh, you know, Miami's already doing, it's like a Netflix subscription service. There's a car that's parked on the street next to mine. That is Mm -hmm. one of those, you know, you yeah. rent the car, you 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 pay for the service as a member and then every 10 kilometers you get charged extra and you just have access to a vehicle at all times it's not yours right, right. and they have that all over in downtown Miami where sure. you you walk around and you you have your cell phone and you just say you know I am here and they give you the car that's right there and it unlocks for you and you There's get actually, in and you drive it um, and when you get to your destination you just leave it there on the sidewalk and the system knows where that is, so the next person that needs a car can just go get in that one. And they have it for electric scooters in, like, uh, San Francisco has apparently a big problem with people leaving scooters parked everywhere. Because you, what you do is you, you walk outside, there's a scooter there, you jump on that and just drive away, and then you leave it at wherever you stopped, and, yeah. and people don't park them well. <laughs> it's so. Uh, but the key, uh, the key to efficiency there is got to control all the cars. You can't, you can't just have one. You know, yeah. where everybody's on a different system, you've got to control the entire system. Yes, then you can do amazing things with it. Without that, you know, it's, it's going to be just as a, yeah, just as chaotic as it is now. That's what I see anyway. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, your roads must roll story would be the people that are running the control system, the overlord software that controls all the cars, right? Or just ransomware. Stop the, that yeah, for ten yeah. minutes and panic everybody. Yeah. Yes, so this, yes. A Russian hacker ransom puts ransomware into the control system. Now yeah, what? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now what do you do? Yeah, the Everybody's other thing lost this, in the cars. Sorry, go ahead. The other thing this story reminded me a lot of um, was working at Vodafone, which was a, the biggest corporate place I've worked, I think, with the the way they they got to try and, like, control and manipulate all the people mm-hmm. and, like, build them up and try and get this, like, 
loyalty to the company that oh, you yeah. want to be here. You you want to be doing this. Your job is so important, you know. But if you don't do what they want, then there is definite like <laughs> punishment. Nope. And, yeah, I don't know if Vodafone are singing "The Roads Must Roll" or whatever the song isn't here anymore. <laughs> but I imagine they are <laughs> like the staff in there. But they are also the people who could rise up and turn off everyone's phones. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe right. they should read this. <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> there are Absolutely. two adaptations of this one for X minus one and one for Dimension X both of those are public domain maybe I'll tag tag one or both on the end of this mm. dang I didn't Ooh. know that I would listen to one of them yeah um, it's interesting because they, they're very uh, <laughs> this is a fairly long story and yet uh, those don't I don't remember them feeling long so I think we're going to lose a lot of the material that uh, you know goes into the background. We'll get the union meeting. We'll get the the problem. We'll get the resolution. But I don't think we get all the um, the driving around uh, like uh, the world building. On, well, what are those? Uh, uh, the other thing that he invented, other than slidewalks for this. Oh, story. those little bikes. Yeah. What are they called? Hoppers. <laughs> yeah, you know when we have those now, don't yeah. we? Tumble bugs. Tumble Tumble bugs. Bugs. Yeah, they're basically unicycles. Right. Yeah, but yeah. they're not they're they're basically electric unicycles. Segways. Segways. That's, That's what, what I was going to say. Right? Yeah, but but he's got one. Yeah. They only have one wheel, so they're not yeah. even as stable. They're more unstable than segways. I love that um, that scene where they're showing the, the Mr. Gaines like how humiliating it is to get on one of those and ride through the tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> Little tiny bikes, child-sized bikes. Tricycles. <laughs> His hands were so big that he had a hard time getting on there. Yep. Yep. Two large hands. There's a picture of um, the uh, unicycles in uh, on the cover of Astounding Science Fiction. Oh, um, really? June 1940. Yeah, it's quite a, quite nice. Um, and uh, they're racing to the destination. And notice how they're it, it, it's set up right from the beginning that they're a military force, right? They have guns. They have riot control, right? Their job is basically a combination of engineer and policeman, right? Engineer and soldier. Yeah. And and that is the ultimate of what Heinlein thinks is competence, right? Is that that mm-hmm. you're you can build stuff and you have discipline and you uh, your philosopher as well as all that, right? Um, and that you know we have to come to some arrangement. Right? <laughs> He's ultimately reasonable, but you know we will kill them if we have to. But use this the sleep gas if you. Right. <laughs> There's a, uh, a kind of a horror horror danger in that he never really. There very few times in Heinlein's story uh, that I can think of where he really goes the horror direction. Um, there's one one case where I think he so he sort of lost control of what he was doing. Um, you got uh, Paul. You must have read Farnham's Freehold. Far, Farnham's Freehold. Yes. Okay. Farnham's Freehold is an interesting novel. It's it's a it's a crazy guy builds a bunker in his basement to survive nuclear war. They drop a nuclear bomb right on him <laughs> while he's in his bunker, and that instead of killing them, time travels them into them the future. Yeah, into the future. 
and it's all family, right? So there's a father, the old fa wise father. I think there's a young daughter who's just married uh, some doofus. And then there's uh, a wife or something who probably dies right away. I can't remember. No, um, I don't think she dies. I don't know. The important part is there's this old man, okay? And his, I think it's his son-in-law. Um, eventually, he gets punished for being such a straw man idiot uh, by being castrated uh, by the new black overlords that have taken over the United States. Yep. It's, it's a fascinatingly weird story. Um, I was really into nuclear war stories at the time because I was worried about it happening. I'm wondering how far away I have to walk to get away from the bombs when the, I get the seven-minute warning. How, you know, where can I go? Will this valley shield me? <laughs> Will this mountain shield me from the nukes? Are they going to be aiming here? I, I assume they're going to be aiming here. We're in NATO. Come on. Right? So mm. uh, I was reading that story, and I'm like, well, this is what, isn't what I expected. I expected it to be, you know... Kind of Fallout, <laughs> Fallout Three or Fallout Four. Well, it now, starts when once they're set into the future for like fifteen minutes. It is because they think there's nobody around and the world's gone. Right, and then and then they find out. Oh no, they, they just they're they're in a park of the of the of the overlords and they get captured. Right, and and the the uh, badness that happens to the sun is. Kind of because he didn't listen to Papa Boss, you know, the smart boss. He, did, he didn't listen to the Heinlein competent right. H. Tiro again, and he paid for it. What, what what would you think would the United States be like if Heinlein had become president somehow? <laughs> uh, we can imagine anyone is president at this point in our in our uh, strange dreamlike existence. Um so why not Heinlein? What would the United know, States be like under President we, Heinlein? We kind of know what at least Larry Niven thinks about that. Oh, really? Did he write uh, a story? He he, uh, he he wrote a story called The Return of William Proxmire. Oh, right, right, right. And in that story, for those listeners who don't know it, basically a time traveler goes back in time with an antibiotic, cures Robert Heinlein in the 1930s. Robert Heinlein stays in the Navy and never writes science fiction. So he becomes and, like, and he did go into politics briefly, right? Failed as a politician, but he, did, he went he did into it. Politics, but he basically becomes like admiral of the navy and gets U.S. big into space. And science fiction happens anyway. So poor William Proxmire's evil plan to destroy science fiction fails miserably. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I think I, do, I think he would make. Uh, I mean, he'd be kind of a little bit like Ronald Reagan, but mostly uh, good. You know. I think you. I think you would be having a lot of public works, and I think there would be still a moon moon program. Oh, oh to definitely be heavy, heavy on space, heavy on public works. But I mean, he, he'd true. basically be like uh, Eisenhower, except coming out of the Navy rather yeah, than yeah, an, an Eisenhower uh, um, yeah. father Sorry. figure who uh, is really he has some really weird uh, philosophical. He's super anti-communist in certain sense. Oh God! But he also yeah. is, you know, he's like Nixon. He can go to China and open up relations with them, because he has some weird. Um, maybe there'd be, what kind of sex scandals would there be? It's so <laughs> hard to imagine what kind of sex scandals he would be having in the White House. I don't know. Uh, we've read a couple of novels on the podcast, Jesse. We know they would be. You're you're fall falling away from your mic, Paul. I'm oh, sorry. We we we've read a number of novels. 
of Heinlein for this podcast. We know they would be weird. Okay, while 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 we're imagining imagining the Heinleinian presidency, who uh, to what position would he appoint Philip K. Dick? What secretary should he become? Uh, <laughs> secretary um, of Education? What do you think? That would be interesting. Secretary would... of the Interior. I'd be worried yes, about Secretary yes. of State, but Secretary <laughs> no, of the Interior actually makes some psychological sense. That's right. Yeah, I meant that psychologically. Actually, yes. Yeah, because you know, like like the like the West and the and the landscapes of the West. Yeah, that your mic is really mm-hmm. far away, Paul. Bring it close. Where is it? Up. Oh, sorry. It. Speak more. Sorry. Is that better? A little bit better. Oh, that's weird. I haven't done. Yeah, it I'm, I'm I'm hearing you well. I'm hearing okay. you fine. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, that would be a really weird, strange history. Jack Vance mind. could be Secretary of State, right? Because he could go. Oh God! Yeah, Jack Vance had been around the world. Yeah, he'd be perfect for Secretary. He'd be good. I. All right. What other positions are there? I always forget. Yeah, because you don't live in the United States. Secretary of State. Yeah. So uh, we got Jack Vance as Secretary of State. Oh, Jack. Uh, Okay. uh, We could do. um, Yeah, Vice President. James Triptree Jr. could be uh, the in charge of the spy agencies, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, CIA director. Cord Wainer Smith is a possibility. Cord Wainer Smith. Cord Wainer Smith, yeah, could be head of the uh, CIA or whatever. Or FBI or the NSA. But yeah, but James Triptree Jr. too. Either one. Well, who's who's Heinlein's vice president? Ooh. Interesting. Ray Bradbury would be a fun choice because that'd be weird. <laughs> that'd be a very strange combination. Because he's sort of a he's an auxiliary character. He could go around opening libraries and stuff, right? Um, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov. Now that he should be secretary Education. of uh, 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 well, science advisor. Yeah, science advisor. Yeah, he'd be better at science advisor. Right? Where are you going to put sense. Lovecraft? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Immigration. Not yeah. into immigration. immigration. That's a bad oh, choice. <laughs> no, 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 Highline no, was pro immigration. That wouldn't work. <laughs> that makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Come in here to meet Mr. Uh, Lovecraft. <laughs> Somebody uh, could write terrifying. a book. Mm-hmm. Somebody could write a book out of that. Yeah. I'm not sure it would be a good book, but it'd be a funny, Fredosphere. Funny, Fredosphere funny can take it. About. There's, there, there, there is a uh, there is a short story written by a couple of writers where basically Heinlein, Asimov, and a couple of the science writers, science fiction writers team up and basically have an interdimensional adventure. It's kind of wild. Oh, I think I've read that. Yeah, I don't remember uh, the name of it. Oh, it's uh, the astoundingly something in the unknown. Uh, amazing, astounding, amazing, and unknown. Actually, I think I might have done a podcast on it. Uh, that was a years ago. Let's see, astounding. It's 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 um, no, um, hold on. It's uh, no, it's Green Fire. I believe it's Green Fire. Is the name of the story. Okay. Oh my! Because I know Eileen Gunn was one of the writers who wrote it. Uh, there it is. Alternate historical novel by Paul Malmont, sequel to The Chinatown Death Cloud Peril, 2007. It features real-life pulp magazine authors and past heroes on adventures reminiscent of their favorite genres. Uh, The plot. The story is divided into a number of episodes and presented as uh, a story about Nikola Tesla recounted by Richard Feynman. Um, 
Malmont bases the Kamikaze group. Uh, that is, uh, uh, they're going into the Tunguska explosion, and L. Ron Hubbard's in there. Um, and uh, oh. Robert A. Heinlein, L. Sprague de Camp, and Isaac Asimov um, play roles. And then you've got uh, Lester Dent, who he was the guy who he wrote <coughs> Doc Savage. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm pretty sure I did no, a no, show no. with this guy years ago. No, I, I, I was right. Green Fire is another story in that vein where basically Asimov and, and Heinlein are working at the Philadelphia Naval Yard and wind up getting into interdimensional hijinks. Ah. And, 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 yeah, and Eileen Gunn wrote it with Andy Duncan, Pat Murphy, and Michael Swain. They each kind of wrote sections of the story. It's kind of wild and weird and and – Heinlein at one point spots something because he's a Heinleinian competent hero himself. He spots something everyone else didn't spot about the people they're dealing with. Yeah, it's 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 a really Scott, weird gotcha story. You were on that show too with Paul Malmont. <laughs> was I really? 2011. Wow. Okay, so I had to have been there, huh? It was a while ago. I don't remember that. We talked about Jack London, uh, Hawaii, mm-hmm. Philadelphia experiment. Um, wow. That's fun. Yeah, cool. Interesting. <laughs> Been doing the show long enough, we've forgotten all the episodes. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. Sp- speaking of which, I think we'll probably come to a conclusion. Pretty close, yep. Y- yeah, Any I want final thoughts on this collection? I have a final thought. Go for Go it. Ahead. Um, not on the collection, on the Roads Must Roll, because the Scientology people outside stuffed their the Way to Happiness guide into my hands the other day. Oh, no. And um, they have a section on competence, so... Uh, I want to tell you this quote. Um, Trying to live in a high-speed world with low-speed people is not very safe. The way to happiness is best traveled with competent companions. (laughs) (laughs) That's their advice. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Sounds. um, It wouldn't sound so ominous if it wasn't from that source. (laughs) Yeah, everything sounds ominous in this book. (laughs) Would you like to go to lunch? No! No. <laughs> there's there's a chapter called Do Not Murder. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Do not murder. It says, that has to be to your chapter. You, I'll I'll give you the the main quote for that one too because it's really good advice, you guys. The way to happiness does not include murdering your friends, your family, or yourself being murdered. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> that is that there's is wisdom. Which, yeah. I, yeah, it's pretty hard to be happy while you're murdering yourself. Yeah. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. 
The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight's story, The Roads Must Roll, by Robert Heinlein. Hear them hum, watch them run, oh, our job is never done, for our roadways go rolling along. While you ride, while you glide, we are watching down in sight, so your roadways keep rolling along. Oh, it's high, high he, the rotor men are we. Check off the sectors loud and strong. One, two, anywhere you go. You are bound to know that your roadways keep rolling along. Keep a rolling! That your roadways keep rolling along. It was in the middle 1950s that the automotive age began to die. The traffic engineers had long expected it. For years, they had watched our vast cities sprawl and spread out, spill over into the countryside become more and more dependent on motor transportation. And then finally, the inevitable breaking point was reached. The growing flood of cars and buses and trucks began to swamp the streets and arterial highways. The building of roads could no longer keep pace. The superhighways clogged, congested, became packed with cars stalled bumper to bumper. And the cities began to die of slow strangulation, for the traffic could no longer roll. And then the engineers took over. They banned the automobiles, tore up the superhighways, and in their place they built the rolling roads, mechanized roads that moved like huge conveyor belts, whirling along on their giant rotors at speeds ranging from 5 to 100 miles an hour, carrying the freight, the food, and the people from city to city and coast to coast. And no one worried over the fact that if the road should ever stop, our whole economic life would stop. For the machinery had never failed yet. But people forgot that machinery depends on men. The men who run it. Who makes the roads roll? We do! That's right, the engineers. We're the brains of the road. And where would the public be if we didn't keep the roads rolling? Right behind the eight ball. And everybody knows it. All right, then. We're the men who hold the power, and it's time we started using it. We've called this meeting of the Engineers' Control Committee because that's what we want to do, control. Because I'm tired of taking orders from the Transport Commission, from slick desk jockeys like Jim Gaines, who don't even know a rotor bearing from a field call. Now let Gaines yammer about our duty to the public. That's a lot of eyewash. We've got the power, and we're the men that count. Now it's time we quit fiddling around and use a little direct action to get what we want. Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! The chair recognizes Brother Harvey of the Transport Mechanics Union. Thanks. Thanks. Now, I don't really belong here since I'm no engineer. I'm just here to represent the workers' union. But I want to know what's all the shouting for. You engineers have got better working conditions than we have. And we ain't kicking. You say the engineers are powerful. You say you can tie up the roads. Well, so can any screwball with a jar of nitroglycerin. And he wouldn't need no engineer's degree to do it, neither. Harvey! Harvey, are you speaking for your union now, or are you here as a stooge for the Transport Commission? Listen, Van Fleek, 
I helped fund my union. I led the strike in 75 for decent working conditions. Where were you engineers then? With the Finks! Brother Harvey! Brother Harvey, remember, you're only a guest at this meeting. Go on, Van. Now listen, men. I'm one of the old engineers on the roads. You all are. Worked up the hard way. We didn't go to the fancy technical institutes like those young punk cadet engineers the commission is training to take over our jobs unless we do something to stop them. Jim Gaines hasn't been able to fill us full of the old school spirit and, the, and that baloney about how the, the roads must roll. So all right then. Why don't we get smart for a change? What would happen if the roads stopped rolling? Maybe the country would begin to realize that they can't do it without us. Maybe we'd begin to get the things we want. Who says the roads must roll? Yes? Your wife is calling, Mr. Gaines. Put her on. Jim, I want you to stop off on your way home. I'm sorry, darling, I can't make it. But you promised. I know, but Washington called in. They're sending Evans, the Australian minister of transport, through my sector today. I've got to show him through personally. Can't somebody else? I'm chief supervisor. Wouldn't be courteous. Courtesy begins at home. I've planned this dinner for weeks. Honey, the roads must roll. Oh, if you quote that nauseating slogan at me again, I'll divorce you. I can't help it, darling. I'll meet you at Stockton at nine and we'll take in a show. Kiss Alan goodnight for me. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Mr. Evans is here. Show him in. Well, good evening, Mr. Evans. I'm Gaines, chief engineer. How do you do, Mr. Gaines? They told me at the embassy you'd be the man to see. I, uh, I want to know how the roads work. I think we can handle that. Well, I'm not a technical man, Mr. Gaines. My field is sociology. So, suppose you tell me about the roads as if I were entirely ignorant. Fine. It's uh, nearly at dinner time. Uh, suppose we run up to Stockton Sector for dinner. It'll take us about an hour on the roads, and you can see them working. Excellent. If you'll excuse me a minute. Certainly. Hi, Chief. What can I do for you? Uh, Dave, you're on evening watch, eh? Uh-huh. Uh, where's Van Cleek? Going to some meeting. I'm going up to Stockton for dinner. Anything to report? No, sir. The roads are rolling. Okay. Keep them rolling. All right, Mr. Evans. Let's go. This is the low-speed strip. Ever ridden a conveyor before? Uh, no. It's quite simple. Remember to face the motion of the strip as you get on. There. Go right across. Each adjoining strip is a few miles an hour faster than the one next to it. Freight is carried on the 50-mile strip, most passenger traffic on the express strip. All right, now watch your step. Here we are. The maximum speed. One hundred miles an hour. It doesn't seem possible. This trip makes the round trip San Diego to Reno in 12 hours. Ready to eat? Uh, is this the restaurant? Jake's Steakhouse. Fastest meal on the road. Uh, is it really a proper restaurant? One of the best. Shall we go in? <laughs> uh, hello, Mr. Gaines. We don't see you much out on the road. Busy in the office, Jake. Two? Right this way. What'll it be? You order. Well, how about a steak? Two inches thick from a steer that died happy. Fine, fine. Uh, plug me in the phone, will you? There's one right next to you. Flank two, rare. You'll excuse me, Mr. Evans? Certainly. 
Davidson on watch. Who's the chief? I'm at Jake's Steakhouse. You can reach me at 10L66. 10L66, right. Yeah, now they can get hold of me in an emergency. Oh? What kind of emergency could there be? Two, principally. Power failure on the rotors would bring the road to a standstill. That happened during rush hour. We'd have to evacuate millions of people from the road. As many as that? Easily. There are 12 million people dependent on this section of road. Gaines here. Hello, Chief Davidson. Just got the hourly reports in. Diego Circle, Bakerfield Sector, Stockton Sector, and Reno Circle all rolling. Oh, you didn't have to bother me with the hourlies, Dave. There's a supplementary from Sacramento. Proceed. Cadet Engineer Gunther, while on watch, was found playing cards with C.J. Ross, technician on duty. Any damage? One rotor running hot, but still synchronized. It was jacked down and replaced. All right, have the Pam ask to give Ross his time and turn him over to civil authorities. Place Cadet Gunther under arrest and bring him to Rotown Central. Yes, sir. All right, keep him rolling. I was saying there were two possibilities of danger. Can you visualize what would happen if the strip under us would break? Oh, I, I hadn't thought of that. You, you don't realize you're traveling at 100 miles an hour. Well, it can't. Not now. The strip has a safety factor of over 12 to 1. It'd take a blowout of several miles of rotors and a failure of circuit breakers before the strip could part. But it happened once in the early days on the Philadelphia-Jersey City Road. The strip wasn't much more than a conveyor belt. It buckled for miles, crushing passengers against the roof. Forward section in front of the brakes spilled them down under into the rotors and rollers. Oh, was it very bad? Over 3,000 people were killed in that break. But the roads had to go on. The entire economic system hangs on the roads. They stopped now, the country would starve. Well, uh, isn't it possible that you've become too dependent on these roads? I mean, if your whole economy is geared to the function of one type of machinery... The roads are foolproof now. The machinery is interlocked with an enormous safety factor. Yes, but in the long run, machinery depends on men. What if you had a strike? We had one back in 75. Well, there's not much danger of that anymore. No? Well, why not? Every cadet that goes to work on the roads today is a graduate of the United States Transport Academy. They're all picked men, screened for emotional stability, and trained to give us the same kind of loyalty that Annapolis and West Point develop in their men. I see. Uh, are you a graduate, Mr. Gaines? No, I'm too old for that. The academy wasn't set up till after the strike in 75. But it won't be long now, maybe five or ten years, before the oldest engineer on the roads is a man who's been through the academy. Gaines here. Davidson, there's another trouble report from Sacramento Sector. Again? What is it this time? What the... What is it? What happened? Emergency stop. Hello. Hello, Davidson. Phones are out. Come on. Jake! Jake! What is it? Uh, What's the matter with the road? Everybody stay in the restaurant. What's that? Probably somebody stepped onto the next strip. Got cut to ribbons. There'll be plenty of casualties. Jake, where's your getaway hat? In the pantry. Look here, aren't you? Aren't you going to help those people? I've got the whole road to think of. Don't bother me. Give me a hand, Jake. The hatch is stuck. If you're coming with me, Mr. Evans... You've got to move fast. I haven't got any time to waste. Where, uh, uh, where are we now? Freeway on top of the inner road ceiling. That's the outer shell over us. Are we going outside? No, there'll be an access down manhole over here. They're spaced every hundred feet. There, by the green light. This will get us down on the northbound road. Careful, it's dark. Now stand away from the door, Evans. Yes. But uh, this road is still rolling. It was only the hundred mile strip that stopped. That's what I want a phone booth. Look out, excuse me. Look out. Hey, hey. 
Hey, I'm talking to my wife. What's the idea of busting you. in here? Out. Yeah, but I... Emergency priority, division office. Davidson. Gaines here, report. Chief, where have you been? I've been calling you. Never mind that, report. 709, consolidated tension. Report strip 20, Sacramento sector, past emergency level. Interlocks acted and cut the strip out. Cause of failure, unknown. Direct communication cut to Sacramento control office. Evacuation of strip 20 commenced. No casualties. Hmm, there are casualties. I saw them. Put police and hospital routine A into operation. Get me Van Cleek. I want him to take over for me till I report in. We can't reach him, Chief. Shall I cut out the rest of the road? No. Keep those other strips rolling or we'll have a traffic jam the devil himself couldn't untangle. There are five million passengers on the road now. Notify the governor that I have assumed emergency authority. Arm all cadets available and await orders. Shall I recall technicians off no. watch? This isn't an engineering failure. That whole sector went out simultaneously. Somebody cut those rotors by hand. I want all available senior class cadets to report to Stockton subsector, Office 10, with pistols and tear gas. Yes, sir. Governor wants to talk to you. He called in. Referring to someone else, I'm busy. I'll get back to you. I'm going down under. Evans! Evans! I, I can't hear you. There's a noise. Put on this helmet. What? Helmet! Helmet! Oh, oh, yes. You can't hear without an anti-noise filter. Come on. Uh... What are we looking for? A recon car. There should be one here. Uh, uh, are those the rotors? No, the big ones are rotors. They drive the road. The little ones are rollers. They give continuous support. There's a watch gang now, jacking down a rotor. Can they hear us? No, the noise filter works on a four-foot radius. I'll flash him. Now he sees the light. Cadet Wilson reporting, sir. I want your recon car. Emergency. Yes, sir. Right over here, sir. Come on, Evans. Yes. Oh, get in. But it's so small. You'll fit all right. You can take off your noise filter now. Hang on, she accelerates like a rocket. Ooh, my, my stomach. Relay station. This is Gaines. Get me Davidson, senior watch officer. Mr. Gaines, the mayor wants to talk to you. I haven't got time. Get me Davidson. And leave this circuit hooked into Davidson's board until I tell you to cut it. Yes, sir. Here is the senior watch officer. Davidson. Gaines calling. Have you found out yet what's stopping the roads? No, sir. It's still a mystery to me. All right. I'm on my way in a recon car. Hold everything till I get there. Cadet Edmonds reporting, sir. Three platoons of cadet engineers standing by with tumblebug motorcycles. Armed? Pistols and tear gas as ordered, sir. Good. Assistant Supervisor Van Cleek is calling you on Circuit 9, sir. Van Cleek? It's about time. Cut me in. Yes, sir. Hello, Van. Where are you? Sacramento office. Now, listen. Sacramento? That's good report. In a pig's eye. What? I'm not your deputy anymore, Gaines. What are you talking about? Listen, don't interrupt me and you'll find out. You're through, Gaines. Ivan picked as director of the Engineers Control Committee. We're taking over. Have you gone off your roller? We stopped strip 20 just to give you a taste of what we can do. We're running things now. Man, you don't really think you can get away with this? You can't start strip 20 until I'm ready to let you. I can stop the whole road if I have to. Then click out call on the army. How will you get them here if the roads aren't rolling? Now listen, Gaines. Whoever controls the roads controls the country. And right now, that happens to be me. Now sign off, Gaines. Got to call the White House. You behave yourself and you won't get hurt. I don't believe it, sir. He's got us, Edmonds. We go in and blast him out, he may wreck the road. What's your rolling tonnage now? 
53% under evening peak, sir. How about strip 20? Almost evacuated. Listen in on this, Davidson. Standing by, Chief. I'm going down inside with these cadets. We'll work north, overcoming any resistance that we may meet. The watch technicians and maintenance crews are to follow behind us. Each rotor, as they come to it, is to be cut out from under Sacramento's control, then hooked into the Stockton control board. Understand? Got it. Check. If it works right, we can move control of Sacramento sector right out from under Vance's feet. And he can stay in his office there till he's hungry enough to be reasonable. Edmonds, get me a pistol. Yes, sir. Mr. Keynes, there's a man here. He's badly hurt. He wants to see you. Take care of him. I haven't got time. He's from Sacramento sector. What? Bring him in. All right. Easy. Easy. Mr. Gaines. You're Harvey from the Mechanics Union, aren't you? I tried to warn you. I tried to get away. He shot me three times. Get a doctor. All right. Easy, Harvey. How long has this been building up? Is it? Man, it's, it's the engineers. I told them they were crazy. Told them the road's got to roll. When I tried to get away, they... He's bleeding from the mouth, sir. Harvey. Harvey, can you hear me? He's dead, Mr. Gaines. Come on, Edmonds. You better move. Hey, quick! All right, you men. You saw Harvey brought in. How many of you want a chance to kill the louse that did it? I do. Very well. You men turn in your weapons and return to quarters. We've got a job to do. To make sure the roads start rolling again. We haven't got time for infantile heroics. Anybody who hasn't got his mind on his job will be in the way. Now, here's the order. We move north, mounted on tumblebugs. We're going to try to regain control, rotor by rotor, before Sacramento sector knows we're moving. We've got to capture any watch personnel we run on before they can get word back. Surprise is vital. Use tear gas when possible. Shoot only when necessary. But get them before they can reach a phone jack. Any questions? No. Then move out. What's the score, Edmonds? 33 prisoners so far. Nobody killed. Whoops. Yeah, since I rode one of these tumble bugs, forgotten how to steer it. Well, so there's a man ahead. There at the road of base. He's got a phone jacked in. Hurry. If he gets word back, we're sunk. I don't think he's seen us. I'll dismount and get him. Quick, he sees us. Here, you. Look out, he's got a gun. I got him. Grab his gun. Yes, sir. You had a phone jacked in, all right. If he got through to Sacramento office, it's going to be tough. I don't know, sir. Maybe he didn't get the call through. Wait a minute. Listen. The road. Take off your noise filter. There. The road. The road is stopping. Halt your men. Halt. Hold up there. Hold up. There's a recon car coming up. Relay station call for Mr. Gaines. Give it to me. Here you are, sir. Gaines here. Davidson here, Chief. Van Cleek's calling you. Who stopped the road? He did. All right. Cut Van Cleek into me. You thought I was fooling, huh, Gaines? What do you think now? All right, Van. The road has stopped. You won this trick. Then why don't you get smart and give up? You can't win. You forgot something, Van. You can't lick the whole country. Yeah? Gaines, I've got a switch button in my hand. If I push it, it'll blow 300 yards straight across the road. And then, for good measure, I'll take an axe and wreck the control station before I leave. That's pretty drastic, Van. Yeah, if I blow this charge in the middle of Sacramento sector, 
It'll get an awful lot of people. There are plenty of shopkeepers still on Strip 20, and that row of apartment houses next to the road will go. Look, man, you don't want to blow the road, neither do I. Suppose I come up to your headquarters and talk this over. Two reasonable men ought to be able to make a settlement. Is this some kind of a trick? I'll come alone and unarmed. My men will stay here. All right. All right, Gaines. But one wrong move, and I blow the road. We've got to hurry, Dave. If I take too long, Van Cleek will get edgy and set off that charge. Failure report notes. One, strips must be cross-connected with safety interlocks, so that when one dies, the other slow down. Two, the men. Yeah, I can't understand it. Psych tests are rigid. We've never had a failure in the Humwadsworth-Burton method. And then suddenly a whole sector goes sour. How could Van Cleek get a whole crew of psych-cleared men to revolt? It's easy, Dave. As my deputy, he was ex-officio personnel officer for the whole road. He must have been faking psych records for years and transferring maladjusted men into his sector. I've got that personnel record, Mr. Gaines. Man's record. Masked introvert. Inferiority rating, seven. Comment. Despite a potential instability shown on Wadsworth Curve, this officer is especially adept in handling men. He's adept, all right. I haven't got time for any more, Dave. You're not going up there to Sacramento office. I've got to. He'll be armed. He'll kill you. I've got to take that chance. But unarmed? Why don't you call the army? He won't dare blow the road. Yes, he would. Look at that psych record. Hmm? He's putting up a big, brave front, but he's rotten inside. He wants to be taken seriously. He wants everybody to think he's the most dangerous man in the country. And if I call the army in, he'll try to prove it by blowing the road. How can you stop him, Mr. Gaines? He'll have a gun. What'll you have? What'll I have? Only a prayer. And what I know about Mr. Van Cleek. All right, Gaines. Director Van Cleek will see you now. Gaines is here, Director Van Cleek. Come in, Gaines. Behaving sensibly at last. You know I've got you where I want you, and there isn't anything you can do about it. I searched him, Director. He's unarmed. Mm -hmm. I want you to sign this now. It's a declaration of your recognition of the Engineers' Control Committee. You've got one minute to sign it, Gaines. Or I'll push this button and blow up the whole sector. You better sign, Gaines. You need this gorilla with a gun, Van? Hey, you Can't listen. you handle one unarmed man alone? All right, Harry, out. What? Out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now sign. <laughs> What's so funny? You are. Uh, you start a revolution because you think the engineer should control the road. And then when you've got control, the only thing you can think of to do is blow it up. Tell me, what are you so scared of? I'm not scared. Yeah? Sitting there sweating all over that push button you're holding? Your buddies knew how afraid you were. They'd probably throw you into the rotors. I'm not afraid. <laughs> you're afraid of me right now. You're afraid I'll have you on the carpet. You're afraid the cadets won't salute you. You're afraid they're laughing at you behind your back. No, no, I'm not. Now, now, you keep quiet. I've got a gun. You're afraid of using the wrong fork at dinner. You're afraid people are looking at you, laughing at you. I am not, you... You... You dirty, stuck-up snob! Just because you went to a high hat school, you think you're better than anybody? You, you and your crummy little 
old braid cadets. Man, you're a pathetic little shrimp. Huh? I understand you perfectly. You're a third rate. Oh. All your life you've been afraid that someone would see through you and send you to the foot of the class. Oh, yeah. Throw you right out on your ear where you belong. Oh. I don't want to look at you anymore. I, I'll show you. I'll put a bullet in put you. Put down that pop gun before you hurt yourself. Don't you come near me. Don't you come near me or I'll shoot. I'll shoot. You I'll... need that. No. Let me let me go. Get that pistol. Yeah. Uh. Thanks for not disappointing me, man. I don't understand. I thought if I wounded your little ego, you'd forget to push that button and pull a trigger instead. I'm afraid you'll never make a good executive, Van. They have to know when to push buttons. Davidson. Jane's here. Chief, are you all right? Are you? I'm all right. Attack now and mop up. I'll hold the control room. I've got Van Cleek, and I think his little revolution is just about over. Hear them hum, watch them run. Oh, our job is never done. For our roadways go rolling along. While you ride, while you glide, we are watching down inside. So your roadways keep rolling along. Mr. Gaines, oh, Mr. Gaines. Hi, hi. Mr. Evans, I forgot about you. Yes, I've been waiting at the sector office. Is everything under control? All rolling. Those are the watch engineers going on to check Sacramento sector, inch by inch. Remarkable organization. Remarkable. Hourly's in, Chief. San Diego Circle rolling. Bakersfield, Fresno, Stockton. Stockton. Stockton? Oh, no. What's the matter, Chief? Trouble, Mr. Gaines? It sure is. I promised to meet my wife at Stockton for a show. She's been waiting there since 9 o'clock last night. Dave, see if you can get her for me. Try the sector office. All right, Chief. And Dave, see if you can calm her down. Oh, sure, Chief. Well, tell her the roads must roll. No, no, don't tell her that. I don't think she'd appreciate it. She's heard it too often. I better get going. Bye, Dave. Keep them rolling. Anywhere you go. You are bound to know that your roadways go rolling along. Keep them rolling. That your roadways go rolling along. Keep them rolling. That your roadways go rolling along. Keep them rolling. That your roadways go rolling along. Keep them rolling. You have just heard X minus one presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was an NBC Radio Network production. <laughs>